This is another Red FM podcast. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, for more podcasts, check out redextra.ie. It's full of great Red FM content. And here on Live Radio, we're doing our very best to keep up with the number of resignations in the British government. The papers are saying 40. It's now 55. Uh, the top Tories are telling him now. Sorry, 57. Is it since I just opened the microphone? Caroline Johnson and Luke Hall have just resigned. Thank you very much. See, even on live radio, it's difficult to, uh, to keep up. Shameless, Boris Johnson will some, was somehow still hanging on to power last night despite a humiliating 24 hours. To be honest, uh, I can't see him lasting uh, the length of this programme. I'm sure he's going to be gone, uh, as certainly today, if not by uh, midday. Conservative MPs were aghast that the Prime Minister told his Cabinet he was staying put in the face of a vast Tory campaign to force him out. It was clear his time was nearly up, with 42 ministers and parliamentary aides having left their roles amid calls for him to go. As you've just heard, that's now 57. Uh, surely uh, his tenure is up and his position now is untenable. The mass resignations yesterday came after Rishi Sunak and Saeed uh, Javid quit their cabinet posts at around 6pm on Tuesday. Now the newly appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer, two days in the job, is calling for Boris to step down. The game is up, I think. Uh, the PM's authority already badly bruised after months of scandal over Partygate and uh, many, many more uh, that uh, he apparently fudged, uh, was defiant and... Uh, obfuscated, I suppose, uh, in typical Boris fashion. But surely now it must be all over. Uh, signs of um, more of J.P. McManus' generosity uh, making the morning papers today. Uh, so if you were a wife or girlfriend of uh, the guys playing in the golf, I think it was a predominantly male field. I'm not sure how many ladies played in the golf. But anyway, they're saying, they're talking about the wags, the wives and girlfriends. J.P. McManus gave prepaid credit cards containing €10,000 each to each of the 60 golf wags attending this week's charity Pro-Am in Adair. Billionaire McManus hosted the event at his luxury Adair Manor Hotel and Golf Resort on Monday and Tuesday. Much of the €600,000 was spent at local businesses in the county Limerick Village, giving them a much-needed boost. And 20% of all purchases on the card system will go directly to Midwest Charities, supported by the uh, J.P. McManus Foundation. Kay Mulcair, who's the owner of a high-end ladies' clothing boutique, Isobel, uh, in Adair, said uh, it's to give back to the local economy to spend in Adair. It's a lotto time for us, a great idea, and J.P. just keeps giving back and giving back. All the wives and girlfriends are coming in, but they're not looking for VIP treatment. They're really, really normal and nice. And the sky is the limit. It's not just the golf. It's the calibre of people that are coming to Adair Manor and they want to shop. Uh, I firmly believe we could open a Chanel store here and it would work because of Adair Manor. Uh, we're ordering nine months uh, in advance for the stock. We haven't a cashmere jumper left and they're not cheap. More holiday worries if you're using a British Airways connection. Uh, a million British Airways passengers will be told their flights have been cancelled after it asked, wait for it, how many flights, uh, and this isn't the first raft of cancellations, how many flights are British Airways cancelling? 10,000 flights. The bonfire of the schedule uh, takes the number of flights cancelled by Britain's biggest airline this summer to, listen, 27,900. That's not passengers, that's flights. BA will inform passengers in the coming days if their flight has been cut from the flying programme. The latest cancellations affect departures from August until October. 
And the airline has already in the past two weeks cancelled more than a thousand extra flights due to take off this month. In May, it reduced its summer schedule by 10%. Uh, and this, this is in the, the UK Times, by the way. The Times understands the airline took the decision yesterday in order to take advantage of uh, what the British government offer them, which is a slots amnesty that closes tomorrow. Under the amnesty, airlines are allowed to hand back without penalty takeoff and landing spaces, spaces which they're not confident they can operate for the rest of the summer season. Normally, they would uh, even operate them unprofitably uh, to keep the very valuable landing slots. But by uh, being able to do this, uh, it's led to 10,000 uh, more British Airways flights uh, about to be cancelled. Leo will not face uh, charges, uh, making most of the papers today. Varadkar can be Taoiseach again. If he did face charges, he could not be Taoiseach. But Tornishta Leo Varadkar will not face any criminal charges following an investigation over the leaking of a confidential GP contract to a friend. It clears the way for Mr. Varadkar to become Taoiseach again in December after a lengthy Garda investigation. Reacting to the news that Tonishta thanked his partner Matt and his family for their faith, trust and confidence during what he called a difficult period for them all. He said, I was informed by my solicitor that the DPP has determined that I have no case to answer in relation to my disclosure of a document to the President of the NAGP in 2019. I've always maintained that the allegations made against me were false. I'm pleased at the outcome of what was a very thorough investigation. He went on to thank, uh, thank the Taoiseach, Minister Ryan, my Fine Gael party colleagues, my party, my staff, my partner, my family, etc., etc. Uh, so uh, Leo will be Taoiseach. Well, <clears throat> let's uh, put a caveat on that. Uh, Leo will be Taoiseach if the coalition survives uh, until Christmas. You never know what happens in politics. Uh, staying with politics and the Taoiseach has pledged Irish solidarity with the people of Ukraine during his visit to Kiev. A difficult to comprehend uh, situation with the devastation and inhumanity inhumanity of Russia's attacks. Taoiseach Michal Martin witnessed the devastation inflicted by invading Russian forces as he visited areas of Kiev that have borne the brunt of the offensive in the city. Mr. Martin was in the Ukrainian capital yesterday where he held talks with President, uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky. The leaders met in Mr. Zelensky's heavily fortified office in the city to discuss the war and Irish and EU efforts to support Ukraine in the face of ongoing Russian aggression. Uh, always a delicate uh, situation, of course, because uh, we have to have cognizance uh, of our uh, need to be neutral, uh, as is... Uh, Ireland's way in wars. Now, Liam Halen uh, reporting on the Echo's front page that a 34-year-old woman has been jailed for nine months for a vicious assault on another woman on a Cork City bus. Judge Olin Keller has said this was a vicious assault on a lady on the bus uh, where her phone was taken. The defendant stole the phone to get some money, but this was a vicious assault. It must have been a horrific experience for the young lady on the bus. As well as pleading guilty to the assault, Noreen Foley, of no fixed address, pleaded guilty to six separate theft charges arising out of other incidents. And defence solicitor Shane Collins Daly said Foley had an addiction to prescription medication and then went on to, uh, uh, and then went on to obtain tablets illegitimately. That's the Echo Front page today. Generation Rent can't buy a home. We mentioned this on yesterday's programme. Millennials are faced with financial ruin when they retire because they've been locked out of home ownership by rocketing prices. An ESRI report found that the home ownership rate in people aged 25 to 34 in Ireland has dramatically dropped in recent years. In 2004, 60% of people in this age group own their own home, but this has now fallen to just 27%, so it's more than halved. Speaking of houses, 
Uh, Pascal Donoghue is planning attacks on empty properties. The Mirror reporting today that Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue is planning a vacant property tax on over 57,000 empty buildings across the country. The move will target those homes which are ready to live in as part of a budget announcement. It comes as analysis by revenue shows local property tax returns. Uh, 57,206 houses are vacant or 3.2% of properties. Uh, The data did not include derelict properties, of course, which could also uh, be targeted uh, for rebuilding. Uh, Recent published data shows there are 166,000 derelict homes here. Uh, However, these do not pay LPT, uh, the local property tax. Minister Donoghue said the majority of properties that have been declared vacant in the local property tax returns uh, were for reasons I think can be understandable. Batty, question mark, 266 homes to be held up for five months while animals are relocated. A major Cork housing project has been put on hold after hundreds of bats were discovered in the roof of a derelict building. The old St. Kevin's Mental Hospital, a Victorian site, was due to be converted into over 200 apartments and townhouses, but the project has been stalled since last April after bats were discovered in the rafters. The site is a maternity roost where female bats give birth and raise their young before moving on in September to find a cooler, darker roost for hibernation. And anyone wishing to do anything with the bats will have to consult the National Parks and Wildlife Service because they are protected, said Katie Steele, a wildlife rescuer in Kerry. Uh, So uh, that's on hold until the bats move on, I guess, at least. Postcode lottery in dental costs. This is a very interesting topic. Um, You can pay... 170 euros for a filling if you're in Dublin, while you can pay, if you're in Donegal, 35 euro. Massive variations in the price of routine dental treatments across the country have been uncovered in an Irish independent survey, showing some patients are paying nearly five times more than others for routine procedures such as fillings. So looking at the prices charged by 220 dentists and looking at the huge differing prices uh, even among surgeries in the same county. Dublin by far the most expensive, Donegal by far the cheapest. Uh, in one Kilkenny dentist surgery, it costs 60 euros for a filling, while only 300 metres away in another, patients are charged 120 euros. So it's good to shop around if you need uh, work done on the old Nashers. Truly fed up, uh, being hangry is called is a scientific phenomenon. Being hangry, H-A-N-G-R-Y, really does exist as scientists have found a lack of food increases irritability. And uh, the first real-world clinical trial into the phenomenon found hunger is linked to lower levels of pleasure. Uh, The research team recruited 64 adult participants who recorded their levels of hunger as well as uh, a range of measures of emotional well-being over a 21-day period. Participants in the British-Austrian study were prompted to report their feelings of hunger on a phone app five times a day. And uh, the uh, university said many of us are aware that being hungry can influence our emotions, but surprisingly little scientific research has focused on being hangry. Uh, Just a couple more. We have uh, in the UK Times, how many thousands of pounds must a unique Bob Dylan record be worth? The answer is projected to be about 600 grand sterling. A new version of the American singer's hit Blown in the Wind recorded in March last year by Dylan, who's 81, and his longtime collaborator Joseph T-Bone Burnett, one of the world's great producers and musicians. He's 74. It's got to be sold at Christie's in London. Almost 60 years after the song was recorded for the Freewheel and Bob Dylan album, 
Bidders will get a chance to own the single pressing, which is on a new disc technology, and they reckon the one-off will go for 600 grand. The Neil Prendeville Show. Cork's number one talk show. Pure Cork. On Red FM. And before we go to our phone lines, just to... uh, just really reconnect with yesterday's uh, final item and the weird food combos. I didn't and none of us expected the huge plethora of texts that came in on this. Uh, just to wrap it up, uh, and I know it's breakfast time, but here's some of the weird food combos you like. Chocolate sprinkles with banana on fresh white bread. Yum. Cheese and apricot jam. I could go for that. Uh, white bread with peanut butter. Uh, Skirachi sauce. Uh, and then you put on some sliced cucumber and dry fried onions. Now, they're going to repeat on you. Ooh, that's not nice. Uh, my buddy Maria at work in the CUH loves blackcurrant jam on her sausages. She dips her sausages, hot sausages, into the blackcurrant jam, which then melts around and sticks to the... Oh, okay, enough. Uh, my son Ollie dips his chips in Nutella. Uh, an easy single on fresh bread with the meanies. Uh, and crush all the meanies and make a sandwich. Uh, I drank in a pub on Amian Street in Dublin years ago. The locals used to go into the butchers next door and get a ring of raw black pudding sliced up and eat it with their pint. Uh, they also had a penchant for pickled onions in tomato juice. God almighty. Rashers and toast with marmalade and brown sauce, not just with marmalade. Jam and cucumber in a white bread sandwich. Sausage and strawberry jam. Beetroot and pineapple. We had that yesterday as well, so that seems to be a popular one. Uh, and a buddy of mine loves to dip chocolate biscuits in chipper curry sauce. Weird or what? And those are some of the weird food combos. To the phone lines next on The Neil Prenderville Show. Call The Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. Good morning from The Neil Prenderville Show. Coming up on 28 minutes past nine. This is Mick Mulcahy. Neil Prenderville returning, of course, on Monday morning. And by then, Boris Johnson will be gone. Uh, yes, we were reading it correctly. Apparently, uh, the BBC and Sky News have been told that Boris Johnson will resign today. But to our phone lines and to Amanda Cambridge. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, how are you? Very good. I'm always, always respectful, and I sometimes stand back and wonder how somebody can turn tragedy into positivity. So somebody can turn grief into a resolve to help others, but that's what you've done. Uh, let, let's start with the sad end of the story, and then le- let's propagate your positive message to the people. Uh, we have, of course, uh, excellent weather coming our way over the weekend. It's going to draw people to the coasts. It's going to draw people to the water. Um, can you tell me a little about your tragedy, your grief, uh, and the loss of little Avery, your son? Yeah, we were, um, you know, on holidays in Spain in August 2019, and uh, we were going there for three weeks, and we were 10 days in. And, you know, Eric was coming over that night, that, that morning, and I was cleaning and tidying up, and I had placed Avery on the couch with his blankies and his bottles and had Netflix on, Paw Patrol was on at the time and I was pottering around, cleaning the bathroom and stuff and when I came out to the kitchen he was gone and um, I called and I looked around and there was absolutely no sign of him and there was nobody else, there was nobody else up in the house. So just happened to go outside to the patio area and um, one of the neighbours were coming up on the other side and he said, uh, you know, did you hear? And I said, no, you know, what did you hear? And he said, you know, there's a baby in the pool. And I just automatically knew 
I I knew I knew with every fibre of my body that that you know it was my Avery and ran just ran and got to the end of, you know down to the end of the pool and there he was the, the neighbour on the other side had been out for a walk with his son and um, had found him and there was a lady paramedic there from I think she was Swedish she was doing CPR on him and you know panic setting you know trying to wake him up and make sure he's okay and um yeah, just we we just had a kind of we didn't have the outcome that we wanted, and he died died the next morning. Yeah, because there was no brain function. So what had actually happened is I had closed the doors to the apartment, but I hadn't locked them. And he'd walked out of the apartment and down to the pool and into the water. And Avery always wore his armbands. He wore them by the pool all the time. Every photograph we have, he has his armbands on. He didn't know that once he went into the pool without his armbands that he'd sink, you know, gave him kind of a, a false sense of security. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's where our tragedies started and with, uh-huh. with Avery and... How far, how far was the pool from the apartment? Oh, I, I'd say not even a minute, not, not even a minute walk, not even two minute walk. You know, Avery was a runner, he wasn't a walker. Um, he ran, he ran everywhere and yeah, we just, just, that's, you know, that's where he was found and that, that's where he decided to go that morning and, um, he was three and that, that's, unfortunately that's the age that, you know, our children are dying, they're between three and five and. Yes, um, because they're they're not old enough to have water sense. Uh, not, not. Not, not old enough to be proficient swimmers. No, but not not in every single case, of course. They're water babies, and water baby classes, and all that kind of thing. Yeah, um, and like water water babies, you know. And every child doesn't doesn't have to know how to swim, you know. But they do really, really need to know the safety aspect of it, you know, kind of the do's and the don'ts, and what you can do and what you can do, and you know. But me when a child sees water they see the splashing and they see the fun and they see the sun and the same with the beach they see the sand and you know making sandcastles and they don't they don't see the danger of what can happen and they don't see the outcome of you know entering a body or any body of water by themselves you know without an adult and without being supervised and and as you say all it takes is 30 seconds for a child to drown it takes 30 seconds and you know drown in a silence it's you know there's no big there's no big splash there's no screams there's no uh, splashing about it's it's silent you know it can go unnoticed someone somebody could you know drown two feet from you and you you wouldn't know you wouldn't hear it. I heard you talking to Neil back in 2019. It wasn't too long after Avery's passing, and even then you had some sort of resolve to to remember Avery in a, in a forceful way for good. Would that be fair? It would. It would be, you know, because um, the I suppose the week that Avery died, there had been there had been another tragedy a few days before, and they had there was another one like two weeks later, and um, you know, I just kept on hearing hearing these stories, and I just I just felt like that there was something that we could do, so you know, we were kind of brainstorming about what you know what what could be done, and. You know, we said, you know, we'll, we'll 
we'll talk about it and you know we'll kind of give our own my own advice and I'll tell you my story about what happened to me and you know I'm, I was no different than any other parent I drowning doesn't pick and choose you know it, it, it was just and we were doing something that we did every day we weren't doing something that was totally out of the ordinary I was cleaning up he would like, you know he'd always lay on the couch and have his bottle that morning um, it was just so unfortunate that morning that um uh he he did he he walked out the walked out the door and down to the pool mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean a child can walk away from you on a farm a child can walk away from you on a beach you know it's, it's just constant supervision around uh, like buckets ponds lakes mm-hmm. beaches you know the hot weather is coming and people are going to have their paddling pools outside that, how how long, Amanda, did it take you for the what must have been all-consuming grief to turn into this positivity and to turn into a resolve uh, that you were going to stand um, up and speak out and make every short life worth something and that it, it may save dozens of other lives with your efforts? Well, I suppose what, what I can say is it, it like grief, it, it never ends. There's never, um, there, there's never an end to it. It's, it's always there. You just learn to to cope with it and deal with it, and you have your own techniques. And um, you know, you look for you look for life a different way. You smile differently. You walk differently. You see the world differently. Um, you know, I hold my kids a little bit tighter. I tell them every day that I love them. I kiss them multiple times every day um, because, unfortunately, you don't you like you don't know the future and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the whole hands campaign has been absolutely great. You know, it's kind of given me something to focus on. And so this is where you're, you're, you're working with Water Safety Ireland. So this is where you're channeling your energy and focusing on helping others. Uh, the Hold Hands program is for preschools and for creches and it's been designed with the aim of preventing more children like Avery from drowning. Um, and so th- this is a kind of a program that was developed, if I'm right, in a toddler-friendly way. Yeah, it comes. It, co- it comes in a pack, um, and any parent can go onto Water Safety Ireland and look up the storyboards. We have the farm, we have the beach, we have the home. You know, like the bath, the sink. We've holidays. Uh, we've all those, and they're all colourful and they're, they're eye-catching. And you know, we have kind of talk about it and discuss it. Uh, there's a pointer, you know, that you can point to. Every child in the picture has, you know, a life vest on. They're using the ladder. They're, they know where the lifeguards are. They know if they need help, what to do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a child-friendly way to kind of teach them water safety even before they get into the water, before they go near anybody of water. And it's, it's for, parent, for parents as well. So that's kind of what we're saying. We're saying start now. You know, don't start in the car on the way to the beach or don't start um, in the locker room before you go into the pool. You know, start now as, as the weather seems to be getting better and the weather seems to be getting nicer. Of course, the significance of, of the name Hold Hands and the programme Hold Hands is to motivate um, and reiterate, the, the, motivate adults and reiterate the importance of holding an adult's hand if you're, if you're, that, if you're a smallie, to hold an adult's hand anywhere near the water. Yeah, 100%, you know, um, we teach our children to hold our hands when we're crossing the road. Uh, you know, we teach our children to hold our hands when we're in a supermarket so they don't get lost. 
so yeah, we're we're trying to teach them, you know, to hold hands with an adult when you're uh, near water. You know how to enter water safely, how to come out of water safely, uh, what to look out for. You know, like the the flags on the beach. You know where it's safe, where it's safe to be, where it's safe to swim. So yeah, it's it's kind of all tied up in that, and you know, it's it's water safety and have been absolutely amazing. You know, to kind of take our ideas and I suppose let us roll with it and let us talk, let us help them out and talk about it and promote it. And yeah, just really proud to be a part of it and. Uh, Leanne Maverley, you know, she was the first one that sent off the email to Water Safety Ireland, and you know, she got the ball rolling. And um, yeah, just it's just an amazing, an amazing achievement for us. And uh, you know, it it was it was born out of I suppose it happened because of Avery, but it's not for Avery. It's for every three to five year old. It's for every parent, every caregiver, every grandmother, grandfather. To, you know, to look at and mm. uh, I suppose any any program, be it on a farm, be it uh, you know a road safety program or a water safety program, uh, the very word safety, I suppose, is trying to combat danger, and with danger comes fear. What I'm trying to get at is, I, I think what these programs are doing is they're trying to engender respect for the water, but not fear it. Yes, exactly, and kind of it's a life lesson. I mean, one, once you learn, once you learn, I suppose, once you learn hold hands and once you learn water safety, you have it for life and you pass it on to your own kids and, you know, you pass it on to your friends. Same with swimming. You know, once you learn to swim, you have it, you have it for life. You teach others, you know, it's a great activity, great water experiences, great exercise, great family day out. And that's what we want. We want every family to go and have a great water experience and return home as a family. And, and your children, of course. You have Lucia, you have Robin. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in how, how you approach this subject with them because uh, you said you haven't been in the water since 2019. Because I haven't, no. Of, no, because of the I fear haven't. you developed uh, after Avery died. You tried once, but even the splashing and the noise were overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, and I haven't, I, I kind of haven't, and even now I, I actually get like a lump in my throat just, just thinking about it. Um, but no, my my girls go swimming, and my love, uh, my girls love the water, and we actually have a swimming pool out our back, you know. Um, and they they know that they're not allowed in it by themselves. They know we ha- either, you know, there has to be an adult, an adult there. We have a cover that we cover it every night. Um, and yeah, I'm just so I'm, I'm just really really proud of them. You know, they're they're. They were six and eight at the time, and they're eleven and nine now. You know, they're turning into two little ladies, and they 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 know the dangers, and you know they they know what can happen, and that's I think that's in the back of their minds. You know that that this does happen, and it can happen, and it can happen to anyone, and it can happen at any time, anywhere. Mm. Of course, you don't want to pass that fear on to your children. So your your grand the the kids' grandmother took them swimming after Avery died, because they they got to learn to like and respect the water as well. Uh, the, the most poignant thing I remember, because it was a family complex you were on, uh, is that when you got back to the apartment after the tragedy, it, uh, no one had gotten into the pool. It was surrounded by candles and teddy bears. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that night, um, all the neighbours and stuff came out and they lit candles and 
um, around the pool and you know I was told that nobody no one had gotten into gotten into the water that day and you know people had left teddy bears and stuff and you know we actually brought those teddy bears home and we still have them and um, it was actually their grandmother kind of you know took the initiative and brought them down to the pool and they, they got into the pool and then kind of other people you know got in and you know because I suppose my thinking was I don't want to upset anybody else's holiday it was their holiday it was a communal pool and they were doing it out of respect for us and um yeah she she brought them down and they got into the water and um yeah they 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 still they love the water good that's great i I, I suppose i have i have no right to take to take that from them i have no right to put that fear in them and um yeah hopefully they 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 can teach old hands and you know it's it's kind of it's a legacy for Avery and it's, you know... And, and, and I guess even the smallest measures, such as explaining to children how armbands work, how life jackets work, could mean the difference between life and death. The really, really sad thing is that Avery almost wore the armbands 24-7 and loved splashing about in them, but didn't understand at his young age that without them he would sink. Yeah, he did. Um, he, all, he, all, he always wore them and he was actually meant to start swimming lessons then in September when we came home. And um, yeah, just it was just absolutely tragic that you know the twelfth of August he lost he lost his life you know to water doing what he absolutely loved he loved the water and he loved to play and um, yeah I suppose this is just a way to remember him and a way to I suppose to teach other children uh, you know the water safety and the water and parents I mean you know to to tell parents you know if you have a paddling pool out the back. If it takes you four hours to, to fill it up, empty it every night. Make yeah. sure your doors make sure your doors are locked. You know that they're not just closed; that they're locked. And if you have to come inside and turn on the kettle, you're bringing that little person in with you. If you have to answer the door, you're bringing that little person with you. Uh, and the same, like the same with the bath. There's no point in going out and grabbing a towel because it can happen in the blink of an eye. And how, how can parents door. access the Hold Hands program? All they have to do is go just hop on the internet, you know, Water Safety Ireland and um, Hold Hands will come up and there's other programmes for older children as well, you know, I think there's, there's like pause for um, that little bit older, but yeah, they can go on to or put in holdhands.ie and it, it'll come up and you can see the storyboards. Um, like I would love, I would love to be able to, you know, to send one out to, or give one out every person I saw but obviously you know the funding isn't there for it so it, the creches have it and the the, care, the caregivers have it okay and they they they, they teach the children then in the in the, the creche or the the, pre, the preschools mm-hmm. I've got a picture in front of me of you of you holding a framed picture of Avery uh, you know and unlike most other pictures that would be uh, you know showing a parent holding uh, a picture of a child that has passed on you're smiling, and I think that smile reflects the bravery and the fact that uh, his passing has turned into something, a force, a positive force for good. Yeah, de- definitely. And, I'm, I'm so, and actually, I'm, I'm laughing now because that photograph, I'd say about 30 seconds before I had to hold that photograph, I sat on the photograph and broke the glass. <laughs> so, there's, so there's actually no glass in, in that actual photograph, and I thought... Oh my God, that's a sign. He's actually he's actually looking down on me. I cracked, 
I cracked all the glass. So I had to pick out all the glass and then use the photograph without the glass in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something to be, it's, it's something that, you know... Well, you should be proud, Amanda Cambridge. You, you know, you, you should be proud of, of what you're doing in memory of your son, Avery Green. And not, not three years gone yet, but you've done so much uh, in his memory. The Hold Hands program available through creches and preschools uh, and it's certainly going to save lives. So well done. Thank you so much. Thanks a million. Amanda Take Cambridge. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. And coming up on 11 minutes to 10 o'clock now, Boris Johnson is expected to resign today. Apparently, uh, the Sky News and BBC News have uh, been told that will be the case. His position now completely untenable. Uh, 57, I think, at the start of the programme uh, resignations, possibly more now. Uh, but I imagine uh, that once the uh, announcement has been made or the... the uh, the story is out that he's going to resign. Those will slow down or stop. Now, uh, he's not been without his critics over the years, but he's never had really a, a proper critic, a strong critic, a core critic. I, I deeply and, and bitterly regret that that happened, and I can only renew my apologies. What do you think listening to that, Roy? Um, I wouldn't believe a word he says. <laughs> Why? It's not, not meaning, not meaning behind us. I don't even think I don't even think he believed what he was saying there. Uh, I'm fully supportive of this Prime Minister and I'm sure he will continue for many years to come. Now I've heard now people say, well, they want him around the place. For what? what? What does he do? Card tricks? Does he has a sing song? Is he does quizzes in the evenings? What does he do? Throughout this p- pandemic and, and beyond, uh, we have been cutting uh, the cost of living. Oh, gee. Right. <laughs> Really? Great, we've been cutting taxes for people on low pay. The guy's talking absolute nonsense. I've never heard so much rubbish in my life. Why do we have to listen to that garbage? It's just utter nonsense what he's talking about. There you go, Boris versus Roy Keane, thanks to the Neil Prenderville Show team for uh, selecting that for us. And... uh, Boris versus Roy Keane, there can only ever be one winner there, I think, and you know who that is. Matt Shanahan is an independent TD from Waterford. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mick. What do you make of these, uh, before we get on to the uh, hospital topic, what do you make of these uh, shenanigans going uh, going on across in, in Britain? Well, I heard a Sky reporter say earlier that it was uh, unedifying. I think that's probably a good uh, description of it. I think the Prime Minister, the writing has been on the wall for some time, to be honest. And he's, it's almost, he's almost Trumpian in his uh, messianic devotion to clinging absolutely. to power, isn't he? Uh, well, absolutely. And his Shakespearean... Uh, adjectives yesterday, I think he's, he's um, probably having a little bit of uh, mind wandering going on there, but look, the game is over now at this stage. He's got to try and uh, salvage, I'd say, in the interim now, a number of weeks while he remains as an interim. Yeah, I understand why they get a new leader, you know. He's got to show some, uh, I suppose, proper statesman like stature now and get on with the business yeah. of government. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Pye, and I, I think uh, on Trump, there's one called Trump's Last Day on YouTube. I think it's the longest sustained insult against a human being uh, that was ever uh, allowed to be broadcast. Uh, and, and I imagine Jonathan Pye, who's uh, uh, is Tom Watson, who's, uh, you know, Jonathan Pye doesn't exist, but uh, but I, I imagine when all this uh, shakes out, there will be another one uh, regarding Bar- uh, Boris Johnson. Anyway, uh, to matters more serious uh, in this end of the world, we're talking about a range of services uh, that are now not available in the southeast. We mentioned this in detail yesterday on the programme. But now, uh, with uh, CUH at bursting point, it looks as though 600,000 patients are, are now depending on its services. Fill us in. 
Yeah, no, so look, I mean, this is a long-running saga that has come about because of uh, back in 2012, government took a, a different step in terms of hospital configurations. They brought in uh, hospital groups and, and they basically split the Southeast patient catchment, putting South Tipperary and Clonmel and Waterford Hospital into a, into a group with Cork and Kerry. And uh, so we've been living with that configuration now for, uh, as I say, since 2012. And it hasn't been working well at all for us in Waterford. And it hasn't worked well either for Kerry or for Clonmel, to be fair. And it probably hasn't. And it can't be working here in Cork where the pressure is being applied. Well, what's amazing, Mick, is that Cork is gathering most of the services and, and funding that's coming into the group is being spent in Cork. And, um, and there is a bit of uh, dysfunction. If you look at, um, in terms of, of the staff ratios, uh, Cork has probably about 1.8 staff to everyone in Waterford. And yet we're very similarly aligned on a lot of services. So I can't explain why that is, but there's no doubt Cork has major problems. And I suppose reconfiguration hasn't helped down there either, but um, what's being discussed and has been discussed for some time, uh, the Heritage Report recommended sending all acute cardiac patients to Cork, uh, stopping all services in Waterford, and Waterford is servicing a catchment of 530,000 people, and does so very well. Uh, but the recent report now that just came out shows that the uh, yeah, your hospital group CEO in, in Cork looked for a report into surgical vascular services. And then the recommendation that he got from a couple of people that he asked to do a review was that essentially uh, Waterford should down- downgrade to a three-day service and uh, why Cork would take those patients. And that doesn't make any sense in terms of... Yeah, but uh, we're, we're talking about orthopaedics, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about interventional cardiology, uh, oncology and nephrology services. What happened to having centres of excellence? Why should somebody from Waterford uh, or somebody even from Kerry or somebody from far-flung West Cork. You can travel from Castletown Bear to Dublin, and, and when you hit Cork City, you're only halfway there. Why, why well, do these people have to travel to one centre of excellence? Well, this is, this is policy, and the HSE believes, and, and they're following a, a centralisation model. It actually doesn't, it doesn't happen in other countries. If you go to places like Australia, New Zealand, they can't do that, and yet they can provide healthcare very efficiently. And there is here to healthcare and the sickest, the most acute patients and, and I suppose the most problematic patients absolutely must be seen at the very high level centres. But then you have step down facilities as we know and they go out under, under Model 3s, Model 2 hospitals. But to give you a context of where we are at the moment, we have nine Model 4 hospitals in the country of which CUH is one and University Hospital Waterford is another. Yes, University Hospital Waterford is the most underfunded in the country of nine. And yes, we have some of the longest waiting lists with the busiest trauma and orthopedic centre in the country. But essentially what's going on here is, unfortunately, it seems that management in Cork wish to try and bring as much activity into the centre to try, I presume, uh, um, supplant this idea of an elective hospital for Cork. And that may well be needed but it shouldn't be at the expense of moving patients around the place. I brought data into the dial only in the last three weeks showing that of acute blue light transfer patient transfers from uh, Warford to Cork, they were taking an average of three and a quarter hours. Now, some of these are heart attack patients that need to get into a cat lab within 50, 60 minutes. So this is totally unacceptable, but it is the direction of travel. And, and my words in the doll in recent days were highlighting this again to government. You know, this is a failed policy. Matt, I, I know you're an independent TD for Waterford, but is it Waterford's perhaps lack of political clout at the cabinet table 
Well, of course it is, and, and there's no doubt a doubt. And look, Cork has 18 Rockless members on its own, and the whole southeast has only 17, and that's all of the southeast counties. And on top of that, government have never tried to to support the southeast to act in a cohesive way. I asked the uh, teacher of me all Martin, I asked the Tornister in recent days uh, that, to look at putting uh, you know a, a Western Development Commission together for the southeast, as has been done uh, for the west, and very successfully done for the west. They have no desire to do it. I think it's because they prefer the idea of faction politics, but certainly it is not serving patients well. And financial care policy now calls for a realignment uh, based on community hospital organisations aligning with the acute hospital. It's, it's not, it's not beyond, beyond the realms of humanity that, that a Waterford heart attack patient would expect to be seen somewhere in Waterford without having to undergo that journey. Uh, I'm out of time. Let's go for news. Matt Shanahan, Independent TD for Waterford. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, and I'll refer, I'll refer back before we go to news to a report on Monday last uh, which said that Cork University Hospital had the second highest number of patients waiting on trolleys across the country nationally. 438 admit, admitted patients waiting for beds on Monday morning. 365 of them were in emergency departments. 73 were waiting in wards elsewhere in the hospital looking for a bed. And uh, if you want to call the programme, 0818 and by text or WhatsApp, it's 0868 106. But we're heading for the newsroom next with Lana O'Connor. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on The Big Red Bench. That's The Big Red Bench, every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Good morning from The Neil Prendeville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy and good morning to a Cork legend, Dino Cregan. Good morning, Dino. And we don't want to be robbing people. Hello. Yeah. Hello, Dino. Who's that, Michael? Yeah, you don't want to be robbing people, is it? Oh, jeez, I never did, boy. <laughs> the the legend you, Dino Cregan. Uh, yeah, of, co- of course, Fine Gael stalwart, uh, but known probably uh, better now for the uh, chain of uh, fine food outlets that you run. Uh, prominent Thanks, one in Kinsale, prominent one in uh, Turnus Cross, I think. Uh, if I'm correct, there's a prominent, very prominent one in uh, Douglas and an even more prominent one in Blackpool uh, as you head out towards the Mallow Road. Is that it? Or how many Dino's outlets are there now, Dino? Well, we have eight articles and in the Sun of Tool as well. Ten articles in the family. Isn't there great money in fish and chips? Well, I mean, what we do is we, do, we keep it firm all the time and we make sure that people get what, what we think is best. But it's getting very serious now, Michael, as regards the price of fish. Okay. We, we were talking during the week about fishing trawlers uh, not being able to go out, where, where it was costing 40 grand last year to fill a trawler for a fishing run for a couple of weeks, now at 115 to 125 grand. Uh, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, rolling the dice. If you go out and have a bad run, uh, none of the crew get paid, the boat is at a loss, so lots of boats are being just left tied up. Yeah. Where, where do you get your fish from, Dina? We get it from Skibbereen. All main manners in Skibbereen. We get a classy fish every day, fresh every day coming in from Munin Hall, Castletown Beer, Skibbereen, Belly Cotton. And we're very, we're very happy. But unfortunately now it's gone so bad now and it's gone so high. The price has doubled the price in, in less than six months. And that can't work because, I mean, if you're subsidising our farmer, which we are, there's no reason why we can't subsidise and get the fisherman walking when he should be walking out in the seas. 
other people coming from other countries, from France and from Spain, are subsidised by their governments, and we're not subsidising ours at all. And we're talking about people that wants to go to work, really wants to go to work. We have a very small fraction of, of the quota in essentially Irish waters, and other, uh, like Belgium and France and Spain, are getting well, higher, the, higher quotas than, than us. And they're gone, you see. I mean, for instance, like me, silver, silver haddock is my fish, and I mean, I can tell you when you get fresh silver haddock, you wouldn't get better anywhere in the world. Well, what other type and of fish? It annoys uh, me to think that all fishermen are not going out to fish because it's costing too much. We should be subsidising it accordingly, the same as other, other countries are doing it. So are you saying that if, if, if I buy fish and chips from Dino, the chips are part of a subsidised regime, the fish is not? Well, the point is, I mean, we make sure that for a long time, and I'm 52 years dealing with fish and chips now, Michael. Okay. And I'm in no hurry to be saying that I want to get this and I want to get that. I'll do what's best for, for my customers, and I'll do what's best for fish. Especially our elders love to get a nice bit of fish on Friday. And we're trying that. I mean, for instance, I can guarantee you at this very month, the, month, the, 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 the credit of sold fish is classy. Okay. Cod, cod is lovely. Silver haddock is lovely. Hake, so a bit of place and a small bit of hake. The hake is classy once is around, once is around. What about whiting and, and kibbling? We, we can't we we can't have a situation then where the people are stop fishing and, and they can't fish because it's in mortis. Mm-hmm. That's what's we happening now, no, no, do you know? That's what's happening. We we need the fishing fleet to be subsidised. Uh, we we need fuel. They, they need fuel at cost. With, you know, with no taxes. Correct. I mean, if, if the farmer is doing it, and I don't begrudge the farmer, they work hard enough. But what we want to try and do is make sure that we're getting our fishermen out to fish every day. And it's not happening. The boats are tied up. It's cheaper for them to tie up the boat than it is to go out and fish. And then when they bring in the fish, it's gone to double the price now. It's gone from seven euros a, a kilo up to 11 and 12 euros a kilo now. Okay. How confident are you that your your range, your eight Dino's chippers or your eight Dino's food outlets, famous for fish and chips, will continue to be able to supply or won't run out oh God, here and there of an evening? We'll be doing that in every way possible. Can't keep passing the cost on to the customer. We have to make sure we're, we're not seen to be doing what all. For instance, like if you're in France, or if you're in Spain, or if you're in Holland or anywhere else, it's not nothing near the price than it is in Ireland. Ireland is pricing itself out of something that they shouldn't be doing, especially when we're surrounded by water. To the laugh. Yeah, we've got all of the natural resources out there. The fish... The gas, the oil, a lot of it has been surrendered through. Yeah, and I mean, very good men. I mean, they, they, they'll go to work and they want to go to work, but they want to be seen to be recognised for that. They don't want to be charged and double the price for a bit of silver haddock. Well, if, if, if you go to work, you expect to get paid. It can't be a gamble. If, if I go to work, I wonder, will I be paid? Yeah, well, I mean, what they need to do is subsidise accordingly. Uh, well, you're, you're I see, very... I see no reason why not. You're very well connected in, in Fine Gael. They're in government at the moment, Dino. Can you make any... You know, there must be a few numbers in, in your phone book, even though you're retired. Play back, play back. <laughs> well, will you bark at the current government then and get some help? Well, I mean, I see no reason why it shouldn't be done. I mean, if it's done for the farmer, it should, should be done for the fisherman. The fisherman goes out in all weathers. The farmer don't have to go out in all weathers. Okay. 
I'm sure we're going to have some farmers now taking umbrage to that. I, I used to call you at, at, at one time, maybe 25 years ago, in the full cut and trust of, uh, of our youth when you were heavily involved in politics. I used to slag you off as the golfing senator. Do you still play golf, Dino? Well, I, I, I find it very hard to draw my breath now. Yeah. I play nine holes now, that's as much as I can play, but I get a kick out of that. Yeah. And great camaraderie there. Do you mind if I ask how old are you now, Dino? Well, I think it was always a pleasure to deal with you, boy. <laughs> okay, you're not going to answer that one, though. Thanks, Dino. And I, and I, remember, with, I remember with great affection the time I caught you on a wind-up as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, you caught me all right, you wind-up. <laughs> out, out in Times Square in Balancholic. The only thing is we've done something very good for the for the, for the, the, the hospital that time we won. Yeah, that's right. All right, Dino, listen, continued success and I long life to you, my friend. It's a pleasure to listen to you, bye. Thank you, Dino. And all the best to you and the family and all the employees of the eight food outlets that you operate. Thanks, Dino. Mary and myself are always delighted to be listened to Thanks, and uh, good morning to Mary as well. Best luck, God Dino. Cheers. Bye-bye. Uh, that's Dino, uh, Dino Cregan. And uh, now we go uh, to Pat Murphy, South uh, Southwest Fisheries. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, how are you, Mick? Very good. Now, there we heard from uh, former Senator Dino Cregan, uh, staunch Fine Gaelor, calling for the government to subsidise your industry. Is he right? He's not only right, but the government don't have to subsidise our industry. It's coming from Europe. The money is there already. People have to understand, we're only asking the minister to allocate the funds that he will have to give back to Europe if he doesn't give it to the fishing boats. And we're not looking for any money into our pockets. We're looking for money to take down the price, the enormous price of diesel for the next trip. So this is like Tom Crean heading for the Arctic. You need your provisions, you need your fuel, you need to have everything inside in the boat. If you go without the proper provisions, you'll freeze in the Arctic. For us, if we go and the price of fuel is too much, the fish we catch won't pay the expenses. And the people that are risking their lives to go to sea, and which they do, thankfully not this time of the year, as much as in the winter time, will get rewarded in pay and remuneration so that they can come back and support their families. And I might sound a little emotional this morning because I gave three hours with our minister yesterday with every single representative of every sector of the industry yesterday and we did not get the response that we were expecting and there's 5.5 million euros there from the European Fisheries Fund that was signed into law by the European Parliamentarian 610 MEPs signed in the legislation yesterday that this aid could be given to the fishermen and our minister more or less told us I'll think about it. Now I don't understand why somebody with that experience coming from a coastal community cannot walk down the piers and talk to the people and ask them, just like Dino, who is in business supplying jobs to people all their lives. It's the same for fishermen. You do it all your life. And if we lose the skill set, Mick, here, you can imagine, it's like the building trade. We won't get them back. We'll have an island nation that can't catch its own fish. And we're not just saying this. This is documented by Europe. So to give the figures to the listenership, and I know I might be renting on, the European Union say it's 60 cents to break even. That's what you need. That's the price of diesel. That's an average across Europe. We're at 110. That's 50 cents of a difference. We're asking the minister for the minimum that we can ask for is around 20 cents per litre. You're mm. still short 30 cents. And he won't give it. 
Are you de- I'm Pat, I can hear the emotion in your voice and please feel free to rant. You have that platform now if you wish. But are you detailing to me the ludicrous situation that the money is there? It's, it's been given by Europe to be passed on to you and the minister. Which minister is it, by the way? Uh, Charlie McConnell. Charlie McConnell, Minister for Agriculture. Yeah. yeah. So, th- like, I never would compare the agriculture sector to anybody else because I'm a small-time farmer with my father. I did everything. I cut turf in the bog, Mick. I come from Skibbereen, and all my life I'm working with my hands. I'm only in this job six years. So I know the industry inside and out. My son is at agriculture. He grows mussels in Roaring Water Bay. So we're all our life at it. My father was born and reared inside mm-hmm. in Hare Island. My brother still lives there. It's in our DNA. It's in our blood. And for a minister, I asked him yesterday, if he believes I'm telling lies, tell me no. Challenge me on it now. Tell me where he thinks I'm telling lies that I told him our industry is on life support. We have vessels that are tying up to the pyramid. Let me explain this to people. Can you imagine if you worked all your life and you had a piece of equipment or like Dino, the 10 shops that were worth millions, right? And you had to close them for no other reason than you didn't get the aid that was provided for you to keep it open and keep all those people in jobs inside in those chip shops. That's the reason we're you members would... of the European community. Yeah, so like, and this money is there. It's not spent. It was in the last operational program. I'm on the monitoring committee, one of the members of that. And we were told it was 6.6. Yesterday we were told a month later it's 5.5. Fair enough. But if he started with that, and there's provisions there in Article 26.2, right, that allows that to, to mediate for unforeseen costs, which the Ukraine war has done. Or Tisha goes out and he stands by the Ukrainians and fair play to him. Could he do a little bit of that for us at home? Because that's all we're looking for, is stand by his own people as well too, to allow them to continue in a dangerous industry that, as you said at the start, that people get a few bob for doing it. Is that too much to ask from a government now that everybody is suffering in this country? Do they want to take away fishing as well as they've taken away the sugar trade for uh, making fertilizer? Imagine we're importing soil into our own country, the greenest country in Europe as far as I'm concerned. With and turf. And turf. Like, when does the madness stop before people realise that this just doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. So, and I'm talking to you the way I talked to the minister yesterday and he more or less said to me, you know, we're not wasting time or whatever here. He he said something back that I said in the conversation that he took it as an insult. So I apologised. I said, minister, I do not want to sound disrespectful, but we're pleading with you. We're on life support. This money is here. Europe has sanctioned it. Not only the European Commission, but the European Parliament. Ten people said no, 610 said yes, nine abstained. That was the vote in the European Parliament. I don't think anything got such a vote in Europe as that. And we do not have a minister or a government department that identifies the real risk to this industry that's there. We have boats tying up. Why would somebody with a boat worth millions of euros tie it to the pier wall? when there's plenty of fish outside there. And just in case somebody comes back and they start going on about overfishing, we're working on a task force, Mick, to try and get more fish back from Europe because we were robbed of 25% of what we were catching on December uh, 24th and Christmas Eve. That's what we got. That's what we lost. That was our Christmas present two years ago.
25% of the fish that we were catching in Irish waters were taken. We were arguing with the department that the figures that were being put out were incorrect. We were told that 46% of the fish that was being caught in Irish waters were being caught by Irish fishing vessels. And there was big fanfare over it, and we were challenged left, right and centre. There was 100 people waiting for the minister below in Castletown Bear protesting to him a year ago, telling him what was coming. And he didn't listen then. We went into the room and he said, Patrick, it's 46%. They brought out a paper in May this year that we're allowed to catch two in every 10 fish. That's less than 20% around 19.5%. So that and I still think their figures are wrong. I still think that we're catching less than that. We said 15%. That's one and a half fish in every tin that's caught in Irish waters. That's all the Irish get to sustain their industry. But Pat, in can, can, can I put backyard. it to you that long before the war in Ukraine, you, you guys already marshaled your troops, as it were, and, and uh, you brought a flotilla to Cork and you brought a flotilla of trawlers uh, to Dublin. So you were under pressure then. Now, Mick, here's the the craziness of this, and I hope I'm wrong, and please God we won't be having this conversation again in a couple of months' time. But the minister announced yesterday we were going to have a decommissioning scheme by the end of the month because people are ringing me, they want out. They they just want out. They're being told in that the boat is worth a million when they could get two million on, on the open market for it. And this is inside in the task force report that they will not pay the right money to the fishermen for decommissioning those boats. So all those fantastic boats and if anybody has any pictures have a look at them and I'm there to tell you this half of those boats could be gone tomorrow or at the end of this month they could be scrapped those fine ships that people worked all their life put their heart and soul into them spent millions to maintain could be taken from them now and scrapped and our Irish fleet could be cut in half they're trying to cut it in a th- by a third but I think at this stage now, you could nearly see a half of the fishermen in this country throwing in the towel. That's where they are. And the minister knows this. And for that response yesterday that we had in a meeting for hours with that man, to more or less say, Asher, I think about it. Like, what more do you need to think about? You know, the, the, the sky is falling down around us, you know, uh, and, and still we're ignoring it. I, I just can't fathom it. And I think the listeners really got a taste of it from that man the practicality of losing a natural resource in our own waters and we're losing it because once these boats are gone you don't get them back same as the building trade once these skilled labourers are gone it'll take a generation to replace to rebuild we're the skills, in yeah. apprenticeships you mentioned and Tom Crean Pat I, I was in Tom Crean's pub in Honest Call uh, the South Pole Inn I had a lemonade there I was driving some tourists around Kerry uh, and onwards to Dingle and the Sleigh Head and uh, you know down to Cruger Cavanas and all of the historic stuff uh, and, and down there, the mariculture that supported, uh, you know, the agriculture and mariculture was the only thing that supported uh, those populations, let's say 100 years ago to 80 years ago, whatever, uh, you know, until we started importing foreign foods and that kind of thing. Uh, and I, I'm reminded of the words of my friend um, and ex of RTE, Tom McSweeney, uh, now retired, of course, and still writing and very passionate about the sea. He said, as an island nation, he once said, we stand with our backs to the sea. Yeah, and, and here's the thing now, Mick. So BIM did a study. We wanted to show the importance of, of our small little industry because it should be a massive industry. It should be one of the biggest things that should be providing wealth into this country because we have a natural resource. As I said, we're getting 20% of it. Can you imagine if we were getting 30 or 40%? 
what jobs that would create. We have 16,000 jobs, just double that. Like, if Dell or Apple came in and announced that in the morning, we'd be jumping up and down, we'd be taking our lucky stars. We have the skill set at the moment. So anyway, BIM's report, Mick, 85% of the socioeconomic activity is generated by fishing in Castle Down Bear Peninsula. 85%. What does the minister or this government think if they destroy that golden goose? We will be talking about annihilation. And if they think that's not going to be affecting the Bear Peninsula, it's not. It's every small harbour and port around the country where people are. If you lose two or three students, you lose a teacher. We're we're already struggling with GPs in local areas getting enough clients to make it viable for them to set up practices. Do we need to damage the fabric of our rural societies more? There's nothing more rural than a fisherman uh, coming out of a pier out between the rocks to go out to sea to make a living. You know, 200 miles off these men fished during COVID. They risked all. They were asked to, to stand up. They were asked to fish through it. They were asked to ignore all the health concerns where we saw people standing outside of windows looking in at their old grandparents saying, you can't go in and give that woman a hug. It's too dangerous. But yet our fishermen went to sea 200 miles off, no medical, hardly sticking plaster. And if they got COVID, to, at that time, we believed there was a death sentence. And they did it without a second thought they went to sea as an essential industry. They fished through Brexit. They fished through storms and gales. And all they want to do is be given a chance. A chance, a fuel subsidy, uh, um, uh, aid, not a subsidy because they're going to use this money to take down the price of the next fill of diesel so that they can go to fish. That's it. This money that we're looking for is to take down the price per litre of the diesel of the next purchase so that these men and women can go to sea and have a chance of making a few pounds. And even at that, it's not guaranteed. If they don't get fished, if they get a breakdown, if they burst the net or if they burst the rope, if they burst the, 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 the steel or the warp coming out of the boat, that all impinges on them making a profit. If something breaks inside the boat, they have to replace it. A sonar is 250000 for some of the boats, you know, and the sonars they use is to avoid fish. I want to come back to one point, Mick, before I come off the air, because I guarantee you you'll get some people ringing up about overfishing. Okay. In that task force, one of the NGOs asked for the fish that are be, that are damaged, that are below um, MSY and BLIM, right? The, these are the biomass of the fish that should be higher. She wanted them named. And the scientist there said, well, that'd be complicated. And I said, when I heard that, I said, hmm, why is that complicated? So I asked the question. It turns out there's three stocks in trouble, but there's 72 altogether. So that means there's 69 stocks that we fish are correct and fish sustainably and only three aren't now if any student came out of an exam with that percentage rate they'd be doing a jig and they'd be given a medal for a high mark in a high a level so we can then tell you that the reason why those fish are, are in those critical conditions is because of climate change because those the waters are warming and those fish are not staying in our waters to spawn. They move off elsewhere. They move up into the Arctic. That's why fish are moving north all the time. That's why we see the likes of massive amounts of bluefin tuna. Bluefin tuna, a Japanese man told one of our lads when they came over to start the fishery, one bluefin tuna, one new Toyota, right? That fishery for Europe is over 20,000 tonnes. 
and our fishermen get to share in a bycatch of 50 tonnes. What? That's, yeah, 20,000 tonnes for Europe, a share of 50 for Ireland's fishermen, and they share that with three other countries. Now the UK is gone, they took their share. I was at a meeting in Dubrovnik, Mick, right, first time that any industry representative went out for ICAT, and I could not believe my ears. There was a man from Nigeria, and he heard what the department official said to me, and he shook my hands afterwards in consolidation to what he had heard. This is how we're being treated in our industry. It is absolutely shocking. And uh, we're trying at the moment to reach out to our European colleagues to give us some of the fish, right? Not what they have, but some of the fish they're not catching. So they're not catching and they're going dead and we're starving. It's, you can imagine somebody sitting down to the dinner table and you have a man sitting on the floor starving and rather than giving him a few bits of your food off your plate, you're throwing it into the bin and you're letting him starve. So in the absence That's of government assistance, Pat Murphy, what you're saying is you're, you're now going cap in hand to your colleagues in other countries to try and acquire some of their quota. We're doing that anyway because we lost 25%. And we were told by the European Commission it was because of our proximity to, to the UK. The reason being is that they were after the fish that we were catching. Look, we've explained this 101 times and we keep explaining because it's a complicated industry. What happened in the TCA deal was we were left to the end, the fishing industry. So the pressure was on to get a deal. And on Christmas Eve, they asked for the, for the, the, the goose and they got it. And the fish that was given to Europe, to the UK, turned out to be 40%. What we gave was 40% of the actual fish. And you'll hear people saying about figures, oh, it was only 15%. It was 25% of the fish we actually catch. We might be given an authorization to catch some fish, but we can't catch it, right? Because they're not there in abundance or they might be in a different area. So we don't catch them at the end of the year. But of the fish we were actually catching, they took 25% of that. They took a quarter of our fish. Pat, if, so, if, if you go to southern Spain, particularly on the Algarve and Portugal, fishing villages like Alvor, for instance, uh, you'll see um, small and large trawlers coming in and out. It's a very bustling port uh, in that sense. You'll see the fresh fish coming on the quay. You'll see the fresh fish uh, on display, uh, you know, outside every restaurant on ice. It's a completely different way of, of treating mariculture than we have here. Is there, too, is there too much bureaucracy and red tape and people sitting in offices dictating what you can and can't do? Absolutely. So one of my, my chairman, Damien Turner, told me when he started fishing first, and he started, he was a lad that came from Douglas and Cork. His father was in the Merchant Navy. He came down to Castletown Bear, and he was one of the youngest skippers to take out a boat from Castletown Bear, and uh, he was one of the youngest afterwards to, to, to buy his own boat. He's at it 30-something years, right? And he said to me, he said that uh, the way that things have changed is simple. When he went to sea, he needed three pieces of paper to go to see the license, the health cert, and uh, the authorization. Now, we put together a folder, a binder, with paperwork inside for him to go to sea. Most fellas now will tell you you'd nearly want the secretary on board the boat. And Mick, what this means is that scares away new entrants coming in, because you nearly have to be a solicitor to deal with the regulations that are coming down on top of you. I think what like, you're saying, I, Pat, is there's no point crying over spilt milk in the future. We can fix this now. Yes, fix it now. Fix it now, please keep us going. Don't do what we've done with other industries. Don't wait until it's too late. Give us the help that's there. The money is there. 
the powers that be in Europe. So there's a trilogue there. There's the European Commission, there's the European Parliament, and there's the member states. Two out of three have given the green light to go ahead. The only one that needs to do it now is our minister. And we've been at this now with the last week. We put out a press release at the start of the week saying to the minister, here we are, this is it, aquaculture, processing, inshore, the NIF, the RIF, the small boats, the big boats, every one of the producer organizations, the co-ops, you know, everybody's represented. And he was given a letter from them. Everybody put in a piece telling him we're at critical here. We need help. You were not telling lies. Boats are tying up. If the price of fuel keeps rising, they just cannot go to sea. But the way to describe this to people is this. A fisherman now is standing inside in quicksand. And if he doesn't do anything, he's going, he's gone, right? If he struggles to get out of it, he's going to go down deeper. But he might have no choice. The only man that can save him in that quicksand is our minister, Charlie McConlog. Isn't isn't Charlie McConlog, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't he from a, a fishing stronghold in Donegal? Absolutely. That's what I said to you. If that man doesn't realize what's happening, what hope do we have? If he can't see it, if he's listening to people to say, listen, they've got this, they got that, they got this, that's enough for them. When it's not enough, when there is another way to help us because it's crisis after crisis. We've spoken to ministers, Michael, and we, 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 we've described it like this. We're like a boxing match and we've been knocked to the canvas three or four times already with bad weather, with COVID, with Brexit, with the regulations that are coming down. I came back from... Um, Gint. I'm just back from Gint yesterday where all uh, the fishermen's representatives from Europe were on an online meeting and in person and ISIS, the uh, scientists group that gives advice in the stocks gave us devastating news about how we had to reduce what we were catching even further in many of the stocks, which we will have to do which will leave us with even less fish to catch. Wow. You know, our industry is, as I said, and I'm not making this up we're on life support. The men and women, they're wondering, it's bad enough to wave your loved one off to go out to sea to hope you'll see them again, but to treat them in this manner. And look, we're not even touching on the other stuff. We're not touching on wind farms. We're not touching on MPAs. We're not touching on the new regulations about protecting the seabed and the bottom. There's a whole myriad of stuff outside there. We, have, we don't seem to be getting through to the people that are making the decisions that what you're doing is a debt by a thousand cuts and you're going to wipe out industries at a time where Europe is on the precipice of war. On war. Pat, I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time very rapidly. In fact, I'm way over time, but it's some support from Anne. Good morning, Anne. Hi, I, I'm just, I'm almost in tears to listen to this man being so passionate and so truthful, and what is wrong with our government that they don't, I don't know, are they all stupid up there? That this, this is the backbone of our country. We're an island. You know, I don't even eat fish, so I, I mean, I'm not one to talk, but I can feel that man's passion, and everything he says is true, and why aren't our government intelligent enough to pick up on it and to see what our country are losing? Sometimes I think this government is just doing everything to, to ruin our country, I mean, it is the most important thing, but what I'm trying to say is that the ordinary people, like myself, should get up and support the fishermen. We should okay. all be out there. Thank you, Anne. It, it uh, is so, uh, so important. Thanks, Anne. Thanks very much. Pat, I have to wrap it up. as a text from John yep. here. Uh, why don't you have a proper protest and block all the harbours all over the country, not like the last time coming up the harbours tooting okay, your horns? Let me, 
I need to explain that, Mick, right? Our industry was on its knees. The morale of our industry was in bits. We then looked into blockading the ports and doing that like other countries. But since the last blockade, there's laws that have been brought in. It's €120,000 fine. And you're liable to be sued by every other person that uses the ports. Each one of them could take a chunk out of you. So as bad as things were, I would not put my fishermen and the men that have risked all into further jeopardy. So we just couldn't do it. And we hear this time and time again. Of course, if we thought that that would get results and we'd be protected, we would. Look... I'm going to be in front of the judges and taking a case against this state again by the hypocrisy and what they're doing to our fishermen uh, as it is. I don't want to be in courtrooms over anything else. You have to understand, Nick, we're struggling as we are just to get proper representation to be looked after properly. Pat, I, I, have, to, I, have, is, to and, and I have to move on. I have to move on, but I want to thank you sincerely for being so passionate and emotive about the subject at hand and fighting for the fishermen. Uh, will you please keep in touch with the programme because I, I, I think absolutely. I, I think this is a political hot potato. You've highlighted some very, very serious issues and I'm glad we gave you the platform to display your passion. Thank you so much, Pat. Thanks, thanks, cheers, thanks, bye-bye. Thanks, now, uh, thanks very much. Bye, thanks. Bye, bye. Now, my thanks to Billy Keller, MEP, who's been holding all this time, and I'll get to him in a moment. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Now, the EU Parliament has voted down an objection to a divisive, sustainable label uh, for nuclear and gas. It's voted down an objection to labelling gas and nuclear power as sustainable energy sources. My thanks for you for holding on all that time, Billy. A very emotive interview. Uh, and how sad that uh, we're now looking at potentially a nation, uh, an island nation, that won't be able to catch its own fish. But that's a different topic. This is a very complicated one, Billy. Can we kind of simplify it for our listeners? What's gone on? Yes, I mean, the European uh, Commission announced proposals some time ago that would effectively take carbon out of the equation when it would be generating electricity. So we now want to go carbon neutral by 2050. There's a couple of steps to get to that position. And um, so we're trying to move to renewable energies. We're trying to reduce the dependency on coal and oil. Uh, and to get to that stage uh, where we will be carbon neutral by 2050, we, we are in the process of what we call a transition. So various fuels and, and energy sources will have to be used until such time as we are fully, um, you know, dependent on renewables and um, other other forms of, of generation of electricity and other fuels as well for transport, etc., like hydrogen. Um, a lot of people were very opposed to the transitionary proposal, which would include uh, natural gas as a transitionary fuel. It, it is cleaner than coal. It is cleaner than oil, but it is not. Uh, it is not, uh, you know, a fully clean uh, source of energy. But it's not green. Time, it is a transition. It it's isn't green. green. It's a fossil fuel. Yes, but it's it's more sustainable. And I think the proposal was, and I think people should just look at the proposal and what it said. It said that gas would be a transitionary uh, phase. In other words, gas, if it was to replace coal and oil, would be allowed as seen as being sustainable in a transitionary phase until such times that would be phased out at a future date. Uh, so it, it's a stepping stone rather than being a bulwark of what we will be using to generate electricity uh, in the years ahead. So it was a transitionary uh, stage. Also, coupled with that was the issue around nuclear energy and it, it came as a package uh, you couldn't just vote for gas or, or, or nuclear it was either for the two of them or, or, or against the proposal and nuclear is a very divisive issue it's a very emotive issue but there is a, a simple fact that has to be looked at uh, and, and taken into account when making any decisions around electricity in Europe and that is that half the carbon free electricity generated in Europe 
any day um, is uh, from nuclear power. 12 countries have it um, and it is carbon-free in terms of generation of electricity. So it is a very important component in terms of how we generate electricity in the here and now and into the future as well. So that's what the vote was about. But I mean, I think everybody, those that opposed the the, the proposal or supported it, uh, we're we're all in agreement that we must get to carbon neutrality by 2050. The question is, how do we get there? How do we transition ourselves from dependency on coal and oil? And bear in mind, as we speak, Germany is now firing up coal-burning plants again because of the fact that um, Russia has uh, turned down the flow of gas uh, to Germany. So we don't want to be going back to a stage where, you know, we're opening up coal-burning plants. We want to get from coal uh, and oil dependency uh, through to gas to renewables and eventually to a stage where we're not using fossil fuels anymore. So it's a stepping stone to having a, a carbon neutral society in 2050. Uh, Fine Gael MPs voted in favour of um, Mrs McGuinness' proposal. A uh, little bit of divisiveness in Fianna Fáil. Uh, you and your colleague Barry Andrews in opposite directions here. Well, it wasn't divisive. I mean, uh, the, the government didn't express a, a, a view on this. I mean, we just made our own individual assessment on it. Um, uh, you know, I looked at it from the point of view of the fact that w- w- nuclear energy is a, an important component. There's 12 countries uh, are generating it. Um, gas is going to be a, a part of the component to transition for a period of time. Uh, and, you know, that, that was the view I, I, I took. And I, I believe that, you know, at the end of the day, we will be in, in 10, 15 years' time looking back uh, and saying that, you know, we can transition from gas to hydrogen. And that is the most important component in all of this. Uh, so any of the supports that will be put in place in terms of um, gas infrastructure developments must not only replace coal, but must also be able to transition to hydrogen in the years ahead. And hydrogen, I think, will be the, the real uh, heavy lifting um, energy source in the years ahead. Uh, and that's something that, you know, we're going to have to start building infrastructure around to ensure that we have the capacity to use that gas uh, in the years ahead. So what happens now? The European Parliament has voted down the objection to the sustainable label for nuclear and for gas. Uh, kind of what you're saying, if, if, we're, if I'm trying to simplify it, is nuclear and gas... Uh, for all of their drawbacks, are a better transition bridge than than burning the heavier fossil fuels? Well, yes. I mean, gas is a cleaner energy source than coal or oil. Um, You know, it it produces less carbon emissions, about 50% less than than coal. So it is a cleaner energy. It is not the ideal energy, but it is a transition. And we have to move from where we are, dependent on coal and oil. Um, We haven't got a renewable capacity up to up you know, to the capacities we need. Uh, we haven't started developing car or hydrogen in, in any meaningful way yet. Uh, and they are the sources from where energy will come from in the years ahead. Uh, wind energy, solar energy, uh, hydrogen, and nuclear. Uh, and, you know, we just haven't got to that stage yet. So there is a transition phase. But I, I think we're making important steps and I, I'd be hopeful and confident that if we can get our wind energy, for example, developments off the west coast of Ireland, that we can sell energy uh, from Ireland through the interconnector, which goes from uh, Cork to France in the next number of years. And at times, we will have to purchase energy from, from France when we may not have wind capacity in Ireland. And that will be nuclear-generated electricity. France is actually building nuclear power stations as we speak. The UK is doing the same. We already purchased from the UK. And many other countries are actually increasing the number of nuclear um, plants 
across Europe. So it is going to be a fundamental part of the energy mix across the European continent. And what we need to know is to link into that grid and be, be, be able to sell our renewable energy when we have uh, additional capacity and purchase from Europe when we don't and hopefully wean ourselves of uh, gas in its entirety in, in the medium term. Okay, Billy uh, Keller, MEP. There's a very interesting um, three-part documentary on Bill Gates called Inside Bill's Brain. And in one of them in particular, he concentrates on nuclear power as a solution uh, to the world's, uh, um, you know, the climate change problem. Uh, and really focuses on the fact that uh, of all the failures in, in, in nuclear... Uh, and for all the unwanted byproducts, it's essentially 1960s technology. But now it can be done very, very safely and much, much more cleanly. Yes, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I have read a lot of documentation in the last number of months because this was a, a big decision for me to make, um, and I know that a lot of people would have a concern about it. But, I mean, nuclear energy is a new technology. It's only been around since, the, you know, since they started splitting the atom in, in, the, in the 40s. Uh, but electricity generation from nuclear or power generation from nuclear, the technologies have really advanced in recent years. So these massive uh, nuclear power plants that were being built all over, you know, are no longer required. They, you can have modular-type uh, uh, developments of of nuclear plants as well and like we've had Chernobyl we had uh, Fukushima and we had Long Island in, in America they were the, the four nuclear accidents uh, that, that, that I know of that had significant impacts the technology has moved well beyond what happened in, in terms of Chernobyl, for example, which was, you know, for, for many reasons, a catastrophic event. Mm. But Billy, I have very little time I left. Can I, can I just ask you, what in the realms of the European Parliament around the coffee machines this morning is the talk about the impending departure of Boris Johnson? Well, look, I mean, a lot of people are looking on with, 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 with shock and horror to see how it's been drag, dragging out so long. You know, it has been sort of a, a fool's parody, been quite true for, for the last number of hours. Uh, I think there'll also be a certain amount of relief that at least this will come to an end. Uh, it depends, of course, on who replaces uh, Boris Johnson in terms of our relationship between the European Union and the UK. And that's going to be very fundamental, particularly for Ireland, Northern Ireland Protocol and all of that. So a lot of people are hoping that the next person that comes in uh, to the... the Prime Ministership will at least have and try and build a new relationship between the UK and Europe and that should hopefully if it's a, a pro-European type person you know improve the, the, the and especially between the UK and this, and, and this island Billy yes. Callagher MEP thank you very much for coming on the Neil Prendeville show this morning text the Neil Prendeville show now 086-8104-106 Red FM and our final item of the hour is an email a very emotive one hi Mick what about people who are working and middle earners that are not entitled to the back to school allowance we get nothing and we're struggling as well I sometimes think I'd be better off not working and receiving more I wouldn't have childcare costs either this allowance is not going to help the middle income earners or people in a one income household when you apply for the back to school allowance the only thing that's taken to, into account is the PRSI, not your mortgage, not your rent, not the taxes that you pay. My husband has recently lost his job, so we're now gone from a two-income family to a one-income family. He worked all his life, yet we're not entitled to anything, only job seekers benefit of €208 a week for nine months. We have a son in college going into his final year. We're not eligible for Susie as it goes off 2021 earnings, and he was working then. 
so not eligible either for back to school allowances. They only take into account PRSI and nothing else is an outgoing. I have a daughter going into leaving search and the school wants 250 euros. We're not eligible either for a medical card, but still the people who never worked a day in their life get subsidised housing, HAP, medical cards, back to school allowance, food uh, in DESH schools, even though a lot of the kids in these schools may not require this, but it's just because of the area the schools are in. It's a joke. Fool old Ireland. It's the gift that keeps on giving, or should I say taking. It is uh, three minutes to 11 o'clock with news next. I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Frienderville Show. And by text to uh, 0868104106, that McConnellogue, if he votes against the pyrite redress against his neighbours, uh, what hope have the fishermen got? Uh, party by people, says Bobby. Sorry, Bobby, it wasn't uh, Charlie McConnellogue that voted against the pyrite redress. It was Joe McHugh. Uh, it was the former, uh, the ex-education minister and former whip. He resigned the whip as well. So uh, not the... Uh, criticising Charlie McConnell for something he didn't do. That was Joe McHugh uh, who removed the uh, government uh, majority last night. Kind of embarrassing, but these things happen uh, in coalitions uh, that are <clears throat> just, you know, just hanging in there with the extra couple of votes on the floor. Now, Randy Santel joins us. We spoke about him in great detail yesterday. He is a professional eater. Uh, sorry, Randy uh, will be joining us later. It's a professional eater and uh, we're completing challenges in Dwyer's tonight and Tony's Bistro tomorrow. Sorry, <clears throat> Rebecca from Dwyer's in Washington Street. I misread that. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? No, too bad at all. So you're going to have this famous Randy Santel in tonight. We are. Both Randy and Katina are coming in this afternoon, yeah, at five o'clock. And, um, you know, this is, a, a, it's a good fun competition. It's not without its detractors in this day and age. And that, you know, know, is it promoting unhealthy eating, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a competition. Uh, you know, a sport, in, in sport, there are things like boxing, uh, where, the, uh, where the ambition is to knock out the opponent. Or, you know, and, and to do that, you must cause brain damage. This is, this is lighthearted fun, you would contend, yeah? yeah absolutely, yeah. So what's uh, the uh, loaded burger and fries challenge going so to be? It's a 52-ounce beef patty burger with crispy bacon, melted cheese, chipotle mayo, onionings, and barbecue pulled brisket to top it off. And then it comes with a side of loaded fries topped with barbecue beans and burnt brisket ends. Okay, so describe the size of that. 52 ounces. 52 ounces. I can't begin to imagine. It is very big. <laughs> Okay, that's... I, yeah. I'm t- trying to figure out how many pounds I'd that is. I'd say maybe like a basketball, maybe is that size, like, for the burger. That's going to be a good photographic experience. So yeah. you've, you've, you've got a basketball of a burger, uh, <laughs> and then that's uh, topped with crispy bacon, melted cheese, chipotle mayo onion rings, and barbecue pulled brixit, and loaded fries. That means they're going to be topped off with other things, is it? Absolutely, yeah. So the fries are topped off with barbecue beans and burnt brisket as well. Okay. Uh, that is going to be some challenge. How will so you offer. How will you uh, address this challenge, Randy Santel? Uh, and do you think you can do it? Good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, my girlfriend, Katina, and I were both excited to try the challenge again. Okay. Uh, as a professional leader, I was intrigued yesterday that you don't actually charge for your services. So, you know, you, you make your money on, uh, on other programs, one of which is promoting fitness. Uh, well, yes, yeah. I'm actually in the process of becoming a registered dietitian. So in, in the United States, I've actually done all of the schooling for it. 
Uh, now I'm working on my master's degree. And then everything I'll be doing as a registered dietitian is what, uh, is what I'll be doing after I get done as a professional eater. Okay. Are there many professional eaters in the world, Randy? Uh, no, there's definitely not. I'd say there's maybe 15 or 20, and, and uh, it's definitely not a lifestyle that most people enjoy. Uh, or would choose. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of working out and, and fasting and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. we'll get to uh, the techniques in a moment. Of course, it first came uh, really to prominence with, wasn't it that, this guy Adam in uh, Man vs. Food? Yes, yeah, the show Man vs. Food with uh, host Adam Richmond. Yeah, he kind of really got a lot going, and yeah. I've got like a thousand and eighty four wins, I think it is, and and a lot of those food challenges that I have beaten were kind of inspired by that show. So big thank you to him and everything he kind of set up for for everybody after him. Okay, and uh, what is the hardest challenge? And uh, tell me maybe about some of the ones you didn't manage to overcome. Well, you know, I wouldn't say it was the hardest challenge because I was just kind of ready for it, and the the meat was was really just delicious and juicy and tasty. But uh, a couple months ago, I did ten pounds seven ounces of prime rib, all in under an hour. So that was the biggest by weight challenge that I've ever done. The hardest challenges to do are whenever there's a whole lot of beef or any kind of meat that's really overcooked, and then also anything that's just really high in carbs, uh, really bready. Like uh, thick crust pizza is always really chewy and tough. So yeah. stuff like that makes it harder. All right. Now, let, let, let's look at the techniques because I'm very intrigued that you're going to Dwyer's in Washington Street uh, today and then going to um, Tony's Bistro tomorrow to do the, the Godfather Breakfast Challenge. Who does two challenges two days in a row? Uh, that is definitely the, the, the hard part. There is not many of us. So, yeah, my girlfriend, Katina, eats kilos. Her and I will both be doing the burger tonight at Dwyer's, and then we're each going to try the breakfast. As you probably already know, I beat the breakfast back in 2013. Yes, and so, you did it in 46 um, or 47 minutes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the goal, the goal for both of us is to beat that tomorrow, so we'll see what happens. Okay, and did you meet your girlfriend through food challenges, and why do you do this together? Yes, yeah. I Actually, she, she got her, her start on her own, of course, and she had a channel going and did a bunch of food challenges and other stuff on her channel, but yeah. I invited her on a 10-day trip to Alaska to collaborate and film five videos back in 2020. Uh, we're actually coming up on our two-year anniversary in a couple days, uh, on the 18th, actually, I guess 11 days. But, yeah, we've been pretty much dating ever since. I'm sure she's delighted you remember the date, if she's listening. Of course. <laughs> I actually remember it more than she does. <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about technique, Randy. It seems to me like you attacked the challenge quickly. It seems to me like you leave all of the breads and things until last. Is that correct? Yeah, typically you've got about 20 minutes, they say, until your, your body starts signaling to yourself that you're hungry or that you're not that, hungry that you're anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. The, the goal is to try to eat as much as you can quickly. And then I always say just kind of coast to the finish. So sometimes you might have like a seven-pound challenge. It might take you the same amount of time to finish the last two pounds as it does to finish the first five pounds. So the, the quicker you start out, the more you eat uh, early on, the easier it's going to be for you to finish later. And then the thing behind the, the saving breads and carbs until last, the meat is typically, especially on like, like tonight's burger, uh, the, the beef, uh, hopefully not chips, but the beef is going to be the main, like the, the meat, the weight of the challenge. So you want to eat the meat while it is still hot and juicy uh, because as it goes on and cools down, it also dries up. And that makes it tougher to eat. So you need to drink more fluids. 
in order to get it all down. And that extra fluid just kind of takes up space in your stomach. Okay, now I'm going to ask you separately how how you can do all this in in, in two venues in one day. But in 24 hours, you are going to tackle loaded burger and fries, 52 ounces of beef patty with crispy bacon, melted cheese, chipotle mayo, onion rings and barbecue pulled Brexit and loaded fries topped with barbecue beans and burnt Brexit ends. And then tomorrow, and I don't know how you're going to empty your stomach, uh, eight Hogan's (laughs) Irish sausages, six smoked rashers, uh, a six-ounce sirloin steak, four hash browns, four slices of Clonakilty black and white pudding, two fried eggs, two scrambled eggs, two bowls of chips, three fried tomatoes, one bowl of baked beans, one bowl of sautéed mushrooms, one bowl of fried onion rings, six slices of toast, three slices of soda bread, all washed down with a bucket of tea or coffee. How does the body handle that in 24 hours? Well, there's one thing for sure. We're not going to be drinking a whole lot of Beamish tonight after the burger. <laughs> might, might, have, might have one with it, but yeah. Pretty much after tonight's food challenge is over, we're just going to probably get some walking in. Uh, of course, after we sign photos and take photos and all that with everybody that comes tonight. But, um, yeah, a lot of walking. And then the big thing is is just drinking a lot of water because the water helps the digestive system get it all down. We'll get a good night's sleep, and then we won't really eat much for breakfast or anything tomorrow since we're, of course, going to be eating breakfast at 2.30. But yeah, water is what helps, and then of course getting a good night's sleep too. So good night's sleep is important. Rebecca, are you expecting a crowd around this evening? Yes, oh, that's yeah, we've had a good response yeah. uh, on social media and everything, so we're hoping that all his followers and a few more come down. And in, in the style of Adam Richman in, in Man vs. Food, uh, it, it, in, typically do you get people you know, supporting you and egging you on and cheering you on as you, as you progress through, through the meal, Randy? Oh, yes. Yeah. And the, the ones that we do at bars where there's been a lot of people drinking, those are usually the funnest where the crowd's the loudest. But anybody that can't make it tonight or tomorrow, the hope is if the restaurants have a good Wi-Fi signal, I'll be live streaming the events and my challenges on my Facebook page, which is just Randy Santel. But yeah, when the, when the crowd's really into it, it makes it a lot more fun. Okay. Now, we have a challenger to take him on tomorrow. Hopefully, he can sit next to you and, and your girlfriend. He's, he's, got a, he's got a strange name. He's Zeppelin Yanu. Yanu. He's a, South wow. Afri- he's a Sa- South African native. He's going to take on the challenge with you, but he's doing it for charitable purposes. Uh, and that's in aid of dogs for the disabled. Uh, so, I hope you'll encourage him. We're, we're, we're going to cover his... Uh, uh, the cost of his meal if it, if uh, if he fails, but he's going to give it a good shot anyway. And uh, we're going to try and see if we can raise a little bit of extra. Uh, so if you can, uh, maybe you will uh, encourage those who are in Tony's Bistro tomorrow uh, to, you know, dip in their pockets and help him for Dogs for the Disabled. Tony's themselves uh, will give him 500 euros, of course, if he manages to complete the challenge. And if he doesn't, uh, we, we'll, we'll pick up the cost of the, of the meal anyway. But I hope you'll give him your support, yeah? Awesome. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to meeting them and doing the challenge with them tomorrow. Okay, I want to bring uh, just uh, so- somebody who's listening on the air, Philip Horgan, uh, because he's got... So we were doing a, a thing, Randy, uh, on strange food combos yesterday, and we had some grotesque and very interesting combinations of food that people like to put together. Um, Philip has one, I think, that harkens back to the days of Elvis Presley. Philip? Good morning. Morning, yeah. how are you? Hey, was, good, morning. Was his, good morning. His favorite one was peanut butter. As you call it here, jam, but it's peanut butter and jelly, grape jelly, bologna, and bananas. I didn't know the bologna was in it. I knew that Elvis was, uh, yeah. was very, very fond he, of, of, of the peanut butter uh, and banana sandwiches. He put bologna in it, too. He put bologna in it, too. That's a, sort of a meat, yeah. is it? Yeah, bologna. It'd be, it'd be similar to luncheon meat, but a lot nicer. Yeah. It's like a uh, pork-based type of meat. 
can never, you can only get it in the States, you can't get it here. Yeah, how, how, how did that translate to talking baloney? <laughs> a lot of people that say <laughs> you're talking baloney, yeah. <laughs> but so that's it's, what it's, used to it's like luncheon meat, we call it here, probably. Yeah, it's yeah. similar to It's not the same color, it's like a, a lighter. Yeah. Like a real light color, like a pinkishy color, not as dark as the luncheon. But he'd eat that, he'd eat, like you said, peanut butter and banana and jam. He had a lot of weird, strange things. Yeah, a few few texters actually tried my suggestion for jam and cheese and thought it was delightfully good. Uh, because that's what you order if you order deep-fried brie with Cumberland sauce. And, uh, you know, you get charged 10 quid or something in the, in the restaurant for it. Thanks a million, Philip. You're welcome. Ra- Randy, just to, uh, just to finish, so that uh, the technique is with you, and, and they're both meat challenges, really. Uh, the technique is to get most of the meat in fast, is it? Yes, yeah, get most of the meat in fast, but really at the end of the day, it's it's big about how much you train. So you don't want to just wake up one day and say, hey, I want to try to eat six, seven pounds of food. There's definitely a lot of training that goes into it. Okay, yeah, from the videos I've seen of you, and you you, you know, you always put up the two hands like a boxer would uh, when, when, when you finish a challenge. Uh, you, <laughs> you seem like a very fit man for someone who eats so much. Oh, I try to. I, I know when we're traveling like this, we've been on the road for over a month now. It's hard to get in like actual weightlifting workouts and stuff, but we're trying to get at least 15,000 steps a day, just sightseeing all around Ireland. Definitely a beautiful country and enjoying it. But big thing is, is just we got to limit our drinking over here because it's all the desserts and the, the sweets and the stuff other than the food challenges that can really put the weight on. So yeah, no, that, that Beamish is too good. You got to have a couple. <laughs> Has competitive eating given you guys a good life? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I, I've been in it for 12 years now. Katina's been doing it for three. We've been dating for two of those. So, yeah, no, I used to do, my first degree was actually from university, was in construction management back in 2008. So I retired from all that uh, in 2013, and I've just been doing all the food challenges and stuff since then. So, yeah, no, I've put a lot of, lot of hours and work into it, but everything's been a lot of fun now. Okay, well, we wish you the best. Uh, you know, they're, they're, we're going to get some, there's always some people saying it's, it's, it's not good in these days, you know, food deprivation and certain families of homelessness and all of that. But you're doing it uh, especially for a good cause with the uh, disabled dogs anyway uh, and, and supporting that challenge that uh, Jonathan put out yesterday. And what, what would you say to your detractors? All good, clean fun? Oh, I just kind of let them just kind of talk. It really, it, once, you, once you acknowledge them, it kind of gives them the, what they're craving. So, I mean, they also probably let the, war, the water uh, warm up before they actually use it in the shower, which that's a waste too. So, I mean, there's always, there's always ways to ruin somebody's fun. So we just kind of do our own thing and, and enjoy ourselves and have fun. Okay, and uh, what, what have you thought of Ireland so far? Oh, we love it. Uh, I actually, in 2019, I got my mom and sister for Christmas a big gift of coming here for a big bus tour. And obviously we couldn't do that. So we were finally able to this year. Uh, it's just the whole country is just amazing. And we've been here a lot longer than we actually intended to because we're going to get to Northern Ireland, uh, England, Scotland, and Wales. But we've been over here in Ireland for like a month just doing challenges all around all the major cities we could get to. We've had a great time. I, I suppose it does reduce your food bill. Uh, oh yes. Yeah, no, we've been, we've been enjoying it. Uh, you guys all drive on the wrong side of the road here. So <laughs> no, we don't. So, no, <laughs> we've just been jo- enjoying all of the public transportation and not having to worry about driving and all of the hotels, all the people here, all the food, uh, of course, all the drinking. Yeah, no, everything over here is great. Yeah. Henry Ford, by the way, the original Henry Ford came from Cork. 
and you Americans corrupted him into putting the wheel on the wrong side of the car. You know, I actually didn't know that. Yeah, Balnascarthy, on your way to Clannacilty, you'll see on, on the left, I think it's Balnascarthy, uh, you'll see the uh, stainless steel Model T, uh, I think it's by the Pike Bar. Uh, you should get a picture there and send it home. Yeah, the original Henry well, Ford I have came learned from. my one thing for the day. Yeah, we had a Ford uh, motor factory here, and it's now the Marina Commercial Park, uh, and uh, provided great employment over the years. But listen, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at what you can eat. I'm amazed that you can do it twice in 24 hours. It's going to be this evening uh, in Dwyer's tonight, and uh, Tony's Bistro is half past two tomorrow. We have a challenger uh, for you, and he's doing it for charity, for Dogs for the Disabled. Please raise what you can with him, will you? Hey, yes, yeah, no, we'll do what we can. And then, of course, anybody wondering, we do keep the food down. This this belly that I have right now definitely uh, doesn't come from uh, spitting it back up after. <laughs> okay, so you, you, there, there's no funny tricks afterwards in private? Uh, oh, the, no. The no, after, after, after our food challenges, we spend like an hour meeting and greeting all the people that come. So there's not even any time to do that. Okay. Just a lot of exercise and, and eating light, lots of healthy fruits and vegetables. Uh, in between. Okay. So you're promoting healthy eating in between these professional eating challenges. Randy we Santel, do the best we can, yeah. It's been great talking to you and uh, the very best luck in completing both of them. Uh, and hey, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting everybody here in Cork. And I'm sure a lot of the gang will be down to see you as well tomorrow afternoon in Dwyer's and we might even get some pictures of some recordings, yeah? Yep, and anybody that can't watch, it'll be live streamed on Facebook. Where will they find it? On Randy Santel? Yeah, everything's Randy Santel, yes. Okay, uh, that's S-A-N-T-E-L. Randy Santel, best of luck. Hey, thank you. Cheers. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Now, a listener recently got in touch with us about back-to-school costs, and we posted that contact uh, on our Facebook page last night. Uh, Uniform banks and schools needed to help struggling families is the general tenet of the post. But here is the post. Uh, Hi, Mick. I came across uh, a cork shop that are not taking deposits for school uniforms, and uh, they have to be paid in full and up front. Families are under so much pressure at the moment, so surely there should be an alternative, like a second-hand uniform bank. Uh, is it time to start a national scheme where second-hand uniform shops are set up uh, in every school around the country? And uh, this elicited some uh, very heavy and uh, thoughtful responses. Uh, there's many of them. Let me get through the best of them here. Uh, why uniforms at all? I love the fact that my kids at an Educate Together don't have to wear them. It costs us very little to buy clothes for school because they wear comfy and weather-appropriate normal everyday clothes. Isn't it time we started bringing up kids with independent thoughts about how they want to represent themselves in the world rather than create a bunch of clones? Another comment said, Uniforms are outrageous prices. My grandson is starting in junior infants and it's €165 for his books and stationery. His eight-year-old sister's is almost 200 and that's before uniforms, sacks and coats are bought. Then, once they're back in school, they're asked for more money towards things like heating and photocopying. I never understood why a more universal approach couldn't be taken towards uniforms. I remember getting uh, given out to like mad for turning up uh, to the last six months of school in a pants from pennies that was really close in colour to our official one. There's no way we could have justified the expense at the time. The pressure some kids get from schools is absolutely crazy. Now, a lot of schools nowadays, says another texture, have uh, a used uniform sale at the end of the year. It's a fantastic way of recycling while also slightly funding the school and saving a big fortune that you might not have in the first place. A couple of more. Some shops have it all sewn up with the uniform racket for years. It's about time a generic uniform without a crest 
It'll be affordable for all. And I don't see why parents have to supply uniforms. You've got to work in a place with a uniform uh, and they supply you with one. Uh, let's talk to Naomi now on line three. Good morning, Naomi. Morning. Hi, Jean. Uh, now, you set up the East Cork Back to School campaign. We did. We just, like, we have schools in the area. Yeah, okay, we have the local jumpers, but we've even got special skirts. And to be honest, it's the, it's the families that are working are struggling the worst. So you, you, have, to get, you have to get a crested top and a special skirt, is it? Yeah, and a special colour shirt, everything. And these ha- do these have to be bought from uniforms, uniform supply shops? Uh, do the schools set up a yep. pop-up shop or, or what? No, they actually come from the shops. And the school will advise which shop is stocking the uniforms, so they kind of get all the business, is it? Yeah, but to be honest now, they are lovely shops, so I can't... They do try to help people by starting up accounts and everything. Oh, they've, they've got their own business to run. Uh, I'm just worrying, wondering about the affordability. You know, the, the detractors will say uh, you have to have everybody uniform, in a uniform so that it's not a dressing up competition and it doesn't engender bullying. Everybody is the same when they come to school. What we're really trying to question here is the need for absolute rigid support of the exact colour and the exact crest and the exact skirt or the exact pants. Uh, which And the exact shoes. Shoes, which... Yeah, which may not be available or may not be affordable to everybody. No, uh, my son is 16 and his shoes are around 78 euros and that's Clark's. Okay. So how, how, how do you get by to make sure your kids are dressed correctly for school? They've got to be warm. They've got to be in the, you know, they, they have to have probably new coats every year, probably new school bags every year or two. I'm actually, I, I'm very lucky. My son goes to a school that we only have a logo the jumper, that's it. We have a coat, but I don't buy one. Like the last time I bought one was three years ago. Are, so they, it has are they growing out of them? Uh, well, I was the, you know, the old fashioned mum you'll grow into. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you, you got it a couple of years bigger, did you? I did. Have a listen to this. This is from another another uh, Facebook texture. Generic uniforms for all. A reusable patch on the jumper for the school crest would be fine. And in my opinion, looks well. So no more crested tracksuits, crested shirts, jackets or uniforms with stripes of colour. It still adds up and it's an uh, unbearable burden uh, on this particular texture, they say. Anyone uh, whose school does more crested clothes uh, will make parents struggle massively. Uh, likewise, you're in trouble if you have a kid that's growing like a weed. But it's also, but you see, people forget, it's also the books. If you're not entitled to help, like a textbook could set you back 50 euros, and it's only because a sentence in the textbook has changed. But is, is, isn't, that, is. isn't that how the printers of the textbooks get to get their annual revenue stream? Oh, totally, and you can tell by my accent, I come from Belfast, so we've always just had a logo jumper, that was it, and everything else basically given to us mm-hmm. for free. <laughs> for free is it, is it a different system up there oh completely we pay like um, if you go to a uh, secondary school it's free if you go to a private school you get your fees which is quite normal but everything else it's free we get bus tickets regardless if you're working or how far away you live from school or even what religion you are it's down here is just ridiculous yeah, because no, no matter how much mummy and daddy are making, uh, every child has a right to access service at an equal level, I would imagine. If, if one child has a right to be bused to school, every child does. Well, you see, we've, we've discovered that, yes, fair enough, people are struggling, 
But we're finding people who are actually mothers are working, fathers are working. Those are the ones that are struggling. And they're really embarrassed to reach out to us to help. But we're actually there to help them, especially them. So tell me about the East Cork Back to School campaign. Well, we, we started it but was the last year and we were inundated with everything. So we were able to hand out all the uniforms. We got books, but unfortunately because one year could have been the fourth edition, then the next year they're asking for the fifth edition. And it's just a sentence that is different. Just one sentence. Those textbooks are completely worthless. That's ridiculous, isn't it? It is. If you'd seen the amount of books we were left at the end of it, we just, we can't do it this year. We just... And they could have been very effectively recycled, meaning that we'd be cutting down less trees, uh, printing less paper, uh, using less ink, oh, totally. and causing less expense. It totally, but even like back, like, well, not that old, but back in my day, we were given textbooks out in the class, and we sat two by two, and we had to share that textbook. Why can't we do that? Oh, you sat next to each other sharing a textbook, is it? Yeah. But down here, like, I, I know my son got into trouble. I just couldn't afford to buy this specific textbook. So what what does East Cork Back to School campaign ask people to do? Is it to donate uh, unused te- to, or used textbooks and, and maybe second-hand uniforms? It's the second-hand uniforms. It's the, the special coloured shirts, the yellow shirts, the grey shirts. The list is endless. And are people happy to access your services or are they a little embarrassed every time? A lot are embarrassed. So what we're trying to do is break that barrier that there is no shame because we even say, donate your last uniform, you're helping us and we'll give you a help this year. Yeah. So you're kind of pay, also, paying it forward. Yeah. And then we've also been in touch with the locals of Vincent Paul and they have actually services that a lot of people don't, aren't aware of. They can actually get books and they have an account with the local shop that they can go and get the help as well. Yeah, you, you'd you often have the kind of passing out from primary school where sixth class uh, and their parents would attend, to, you know, all the photographs would be taken and all the refreshments would be provided by the parents of fifth class uh, who'll then receive the same acknowledgement and the same support uh, next year when their kids are passing out from sixth class. Uh, so you're kind of doing the same with the uniforms and books here. Yeah, and there's no shame in it. This is what we're trying to say. There's absolutely no shame. I'd rather give you a second-hand uniform for you to pay the mortgage. Or even the food bill. Fair, fair point, fair point. We have Geraldine on line four. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, how are you? Good, what's your story? Well, I just, I totally agree with that lady that's talking there. About, like, back in our day, I mean, I, I, I can remember sharing textbooks, or if we had homework, we'd take a textbook home and we'd bring it back the following day. And the only thing my parents back then had to pay for was my school uniform and uh, copies and stuff. The rest was all supplied by the school. And the fact is, I've, I've got grown-up children now, but I mean, I mean, I'm in my 60s, but I struggled every year putting my six daughters to school. And there were some times I couldn't afford it. Now I've got grandchildren going to school, and the price of the tracksuits are outrageous. I mean, they have to have a certain polo shirt, they have to have a certain shirt, certain books. And I've never heard of this before, but they have to have a certain folder, because they can't have that kind of folder, plastic folder. And... And then the, the copies that, that my children got were the just ordinary copies. You could buy 10 for £2 or something. Now you have to have a certain copy and all this. And, I mean, my, my girls are struggling. They're not the only ones. There's thousands of people in the whole country struggling. But, I mean, between this, I think it's outrageous. Free, as my dad got arrested 
free education in my eyeball is what you used to say. Yeah, but in, in, in this age of, of you know, diversity and free, I mean, freedom of expression, why, why are we striving to, uh, you know, automate the kids, put everything in, in, in make everybody the same? Same textbooks, same shirts, same skirt. But this is it. Why not? Why can't they just, I mean, the uniforms are a great thing, don't get me wrong, but I mean, the, the, the prices are, to, I mean, I remember my two girls going to a secondary school in Limerick and I mean, their skirts alone were, their skirts alone were 50 euros each. Now, I had to buy four skirts for the two girls when they were finishing school. Their shirts, because one was bigger than the other, one was 15 euros, the other was 26. The same with the jumpers. If it was a bigger size, it was more expensive. And then they had to have a certain sock. You couldn't get socks in Duns or Pennies. They had to have a wine sock. Now, they were 15 euros a pair. And then they had to have the, um, the shoes, the certain shoes. There were 100 and something euros. But I was lucky enough, I got mine in Duns for 25. And then they had to have school. I mean, every year, putting the girls to school, putting your children to school, it's like they have, <clears throat> they've got one sibling, one and one, and then you can't give them their books from the year before because they're not in the curriculum which I do not get at all. I mean, I've seen it with my girls and my grandchildren, and, like, one of my grandchildren is going into, into second class now. Now, his books, his textbooks, will not do his younger brother. So it's more money handing it's out. more money coming out, yeah. And, and yeah. In, in, in these restricted times when everyone is to the pin of their collar to keep the, the kids fed and warm, this, yeah. is, this is... And I know the government are going to give, you, give 100 euros next week. Uh, Don't get me wrong, 100 euros. Right, uh, I think, think it's 160 next week and 100 yeah, uh, at the end of July. They think they're brilliant. Let me tell you, 160 will not, will not even cover a uniform. And that's been straight about. Really? Really, because I've got I've grand, I've grandchildren, I had grandchildren, well, I've got another one who's starting in, in going into the, um, the, what do you call it? Not Montessori or whatever you call it. The, I call them um, play schools, but they're not play schools anymore. Now, they have to have a tracksuit, right? The tracksuit alone is, is, is nearly over 60 euro, and they have to have the yellow pol- polo shirt, which is where well, you can get two packs inside and done, we say, for a tenner, but you can't get the yellow one. You can't get the ones that they have to have. Now, Naomi, you know? are, are you seeing an increasing demand for the services offered by East Cork Back to School? Oh, 110%. But it's the people, like, there's so many people that's not entitled to that money. That's the scary point. Sorry, sorry, I missed you there. Will you say that again? Sorry, there's a lot of people in Ireland that isn't entitled to the back-to-school line. So yeah, they're basically I, I, paying a lot more. Well, yeah, your dog's getting excited there. Yeah, I, I know, it's a Jack Russell. <laughs> I, I had a very emotive letter from you know, someone whose husband lost their job. And because everything is based on 2021 when he was in full employment, it doesn't reflect the current situation at all. Uh, and that kind of applies to Susie. It applies to back-to-school allowance or any other grants that people uh, who, you know, who are in continuing uh, need of support are getting. Uh, but if you, if you suddenly lose your job, um, sorry, yeah, you should have lost it over a year ago, you might be okay. It doesn't reflect the position you're in now. No, and but the same, but the same people who don't have a bracket by about five years, and they, they're, they're having to pay for everything. It is it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. I agree with you. I mean, I can remember when, when I was on my own raising my six daughters, I got absolutely nothing. I got nothing towards nothing because it, <clears throat> I wasn't entitled to it. And I remember the social welfare officer coming to my house and telling me I was, I was under, under the poverty line. And I said to him, you think that? I was actually under that. And that's many years ago. But, I mean, I, I got absolutely nothing. Nothing. 
And are, yeah, your, no are your own children struggling now with back to school for their kids, your grandkids? Well, of course, of course they are. I mean, who, I mean, not being disrespectful, who isn't struggling? It's not just, I mean, like I said, there's thousands of people, not just my family, but I mean, there's thousands of families. And like that lady said, there could be five euro over the bracket. I remember many, many years ago, because my ex-husband was earning five pound at the time over the bracket, we couldn't get a medical card. So every visit to the doctor was between 50 and 70 pounds that time. He could have, taken, mean, could he could have taken a small pay cut, I suppose, not being no, flippant about it. No, no, I remember it, I mean, as if it was yesterday. That's a long time ago. Like I said, I'm in my 60s. I mean, I live on my own, and it's a choice this year. Now, am I going to get food, or am I going to put my heating on? And I'm not the only one. There's people ev- all over the, the, the country doing, that are doing, having the, well, will I pay the rent this week? Will I pay the bills? Or will I put clothes on my children's back to school? Will I get their books? Mm. And direct debits bouncing for for electricity and and for phones and all that oh, kind of thing yes. already. Doug, oh, they're going to give us money. Wow, that's brilliant. But I mean, how much of a tax rebate did they get a couple of months ago? The government. I mean, your man's off in, in Ukraine now on on a break meeting the, the Ukrainian government. With a, how much did that cost the taxpayers and the ordinary people that are on low income and social welfare? How much did that cost them? for him to have a little trip over there. Yeah, but still, still, it's important to show solidarity in the face of atrocity. Well, I get that. I understand. I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but I'm just saying it, it just makes my blood boil when I see everyone, everyone struggling. It's just, I mean, I'm, I'm saddened by it. And in this year, 2022, people, or 28, are, are still thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? We had, we had a great, uh, we do it every year and we support uh, Joe's Hair Salon across from Flannery's. They have a very, very upbeat and positive appeal out there for those who can afford uh, to drop in the, you know, the geometry sets, the pencils, uh, the copy books, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and where and is that, in Cork? In, it's in Cork, across from Flannery's yeah. Bar, and there's a big hoolie, or as we call it, back to schoolie, um, towards the end of August where, you know, uh, there won't be much stuff left. Um, but he really does uh, put his heart on his sleeve and support everyone who needs well, help speaking, getting back to school. The people in Limerick didn't do that. I mean, the people in Limerick, I mean, the people that have that like that do that in Limerick. They don't. But see, that's the problem. There is people that do that, but they've just, you don't hear of them. That's what I'm saying. It's all kept hush-hush. Yeah. And if you, whoever you know, is, it's, that's the sad thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, like I said, it is there, but nobody is kept in the rats. I mean, I yeah. remember many, many years ago, um, my older girls, I used to have to get the Harper 7 bus, because I lived in, in the country town, the Harper 7 bus up to Cork City, and it's behind the people, round by the courthouse, and there was a little shop there where you could get school books. I remember queuing up there for hours. hours, Irish, hours, hours. Irish children, ladies, are constitutionally entitled to a free education, but their, their parents are being squeezed on the periphery. Yes, the education is free. But you've got to get this type of uniform. You've got to get this type yeah. of tracksuit. And, and then you have to make contributions towards heat. You have to make contributions towards insurance. Uh, yeah. is, is it safe to say there is no such thing as a free education in this country? No there are too many associated costs. No, there's no free education whatsoever in this country because you, you pay all these things to get into school and the children aren't in school a couple of weeks and, oh, we need another book. Oh, you've got to pay for this. Oh, oops, you've got to pay for that. I've yeah. been through it myself with my girls. I remember... My eldest girl was 14 August. I remember in secondary school, and she rang me one day. She said, I have, to have, I have to get this book. So I went down to the local bookstore. I was living in Mill Street, and I paid something like 50 euro for this book <clears throat> with a, 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 a seat, whatever it was. I took it down to the school, and she came home that evening, and she told me, we don't need it now. Oh, right? serious? So I went back, to, went back. I swear to God, I went back to the bookshop, and they said, we, can, we, we, we can't give you, we can't refund your money, but we'll give you... Um, 
a little bit, we're, we're a little bit back now. And I said, but it's no, well, it's been used. I said, she opened the book and looked at it and told it that they didn't need it. And no, no, no refund. I mean, well, I, I, moved. I guess if she didn't need it, everyone's going to be saying that and the bookshop won't sell any more of them either. Yeah, yeah but you see, the, and the thing is, I mean, I found a receipt many time, many years ago that I, when I, mean, I had my three eldest girls going to secondary school, and it was a receipt for £1,000 at the time in a bookstore in Mill Street. Wow. And that was, and that was just about including a few copies. Now, I, I have it. I, when I money was money, was, as they say. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Ladies, I mean, well, know, thank, thank you both for coming on. Naomi, uh, every success to the East Cork Back to School campaign. Geraldine, I, I hope your, your girls are not with their children going, going to have to, you know, go to the pin of their collar as you did to faithfully support their, their school attendance. Well, the way this country is going, my love, it's, it's happening. In this, in this time at the, of the world, 2022, it's just a joke. Thanks, Megan. I'm sure... That all right, thank you. Thanks, Take Geraldine. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Naomi, as well. Uh, school uniforms should be bought in the likes of Duns and Tesco, and the schools supply the badges and get the parents to sew them on. It sounds a bit Eamon Ryanish, but this is the world we live in now. It's consumed by greed. The new rule of thumb is to screw as much money as you can out of as many working-class people as is possible. Actually, that's like a mantra for government. Uh, it would be fine if the uniforms weren't branded. Everything for my daughter is branded, so I have to pay about eleven fifty for a T-shirt. That's just awful quality, but because it has the brand, uh, just because it has the crest and the name on it, the same uh, T-shirt is two fifty in Tesco without the branding. Uh, my daughter's in a school where even the leggings for PE are bloody crested. Uh, they still do uniform inspections, and uh, yeah, are they in the army? Uh, and kids get written up if anything is wrong, even down to the sock color. I kid you not. And you can only buy in one shop. It's absolutely disgraceful. Take off an old crest and put it on a Dunn's item. I'm doing it every year and I'm saving money. Here's a wild idea. Get rid of school uniforms altogether, like in many countries. It's time to stop these branded uniforms, which cost a small fortune. Go back to the way it was before when the crest would be sewn onto the jumper or cardigan, like they do in the Boy Scouts or the Girls' Guides. These branded uniforms are only a money-making racket. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone line remain open after midday 0818 104 106 10 to 12 Mick Mulcahy on the second last Neil Prendival show before Neil returns from the Holliers on Monday morning the political shenanigans continue in the UK I'll get to Geraldine in a moment uh, thanks for holding Geraldine but Boris Johnson apparently is appointing a new government kicking off with policing minister Kit Malthouse being made Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster the most senior minister in the cabinet office after the Prime Minister Greg Clark an ardent remainer by the way not a Brexiteer will take over over from Michael Gove as levering up secretary. James Cleverly is going to be education secretary the third in three days. Uh, and uh, Labour leader Sakir Starmer says he's going to bring a, uh, a vote of no confidence in uh, Parliament if Boris Johnson doesn't stand aside quickly. He said he needs to go completely. None of this nonsense about clinging on for a few months. He's inflicted lies, fraud and chaos on the country. Uh, and you know we're stuck with a government that isn't functioning in the middle of a cost of living crisis. Now whether Sakir Starmer can bring that uh, vote of no confidence, uh, I'm not sure but uh, under Conservative Party rules unless they change them and they probably won't now that he's going. Uh, he can't face another vote of no confidence or another a vote of confidence in his leadership, to be more correct, uh, for 11 months. Uh, but it's playing out and we're expecting a statement from the uh, clinging on Prime Minister who's announced he will go, uh, but now is trying to hang on for a long time. Uh, but probably one o'clock on the live news, but we'll keep you up to date on Red FM News during the course of the day. Geraldine, good morning. Thanks for holding.
Hello. Hi. Now you have to pay 150 a month for the bus to school for the yes. kids. Yes. 150 a and month. You, yes, it's it's gone up. It was 135, but with all the the diesel going up now and everything, we were told that it would be going up again. But because we're not in a catchment, the catchment area for the bus there and buses, we have to get private buses, and we're not going to get anything off. And I just think it's it's scandal. But you're five, you you're five kilometres outside the catchment area. Sure, sure. It would be about five kilometres um, to go on bus air and transport, but we're, we're not entitled to it. Because so we would have to get private buses. But can, could, could you not drop them to a spot within the catchment area, like a bus stop no, or something? because the, you know, the bus air and buses then are all full up. You know, they're... Oh, all, they, the, all the places are their, already allocated? Yes, all are allocated because they have their quota and... So we have to pay privately, and if you have two children going, it's going to be more. If you have, it, and it, like you're not going to get anything, we're not going to get the free buses at all. We have to pay. How far is the school from where you live? Uh, oh, it, it it would be a, a good bit out now, all right. You know what I mean? It would be a good bit out, and I wouldn't be in position to to drive it, my son. Do you know what I mean? He would have to get the bus. You yeah, know? I, I was going to ask: Is there any option of driving? Your son to school? No, bec- no, because I have uh, another son who's totally disabled, so I would have to bring that son to school. So, no, it, it's just not feasible. So, sure, surely, in, in those conditions, if, 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 if your your disabled son's primary carer, sure, surely that mm-hmm. will, sure, surely that's an extenuating circumstance that should entitle your your child to free transport. Well, Mick, no, it doesn't. Not at all. Once your son turns eighteen, when they're disabled, you you that's it. How how difficult is it for you to keep things going with with schooling? No, we're a working class family. I mean, my husband works; he's the main breadwinner. But we're a working class family, and it's just terrible. It's just I I just think it's a disgrace, as you said. I know, um, people are struggling, fierce. And the government are saying, you know, that we're going to help people and they're going to get free buses, but we have no free bus. My son needs to go to school. And I just think it's it's a disgrace. And Geraldine, are, 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 you experiencing, are, are you experiencing what the last two ladies are experiencing, that, you know, curriculum school books change just for one or two oh, sentences or a chapter or something? Oh, it's terrible, terrible. And only this year now... And I don't, I'm not going to be naming the school or anything, but they're after bringing in crested jackets. They're after bringing in crested uh, tracksuit bottoms. Um, I mean, my my child is going into um, a second year, and I got him, you know, a good jacket to last him through the school years last year, and that jacket now is no good. You have to buy a brand new jacket with a crest on it. Brand new jacket, and I asked. I actually rang this, this this particular shop and I asked, could I get the crest put on? Uh, I think the jackets start at uh, 45 euros, but the, you know, the taller your children are or the bigger your children are, they go up in price. And I was told no, because the crest is actually, you know, on the jacket now. So I'm literally going to be buying the same jacket. I wonder are the, are the schools getting a percentage of that from the, from the suppliers? I, because I actually don't know, Mick, but I just think it's just it's just a joke. And as you said, the, the contributions they're gone up in the school as well. And 
I just and then when you have another child, you know, with special needs and everything and all all things to do with him and it's yeah. just it's life just is awful. tough and the winter is coming, as they say. Yeah, it's awful. And when you've only, you know, like one wage coming in and it's it's very hard. You know? Geraldine, and thank, I just think uh, th- thank, no, no, thank you for, your thank call you for and taking my call. Yeah, you're you're very kind to come on the air. Thank you very much. No, no, thank you. Have a nice day. Cheers, Bye. you too. Uh, okay, Bye. I think I think uniform should go. It's ridiculous seeing seventeen and eighteen year olds in tartan skirts when they can vote, uh, when they can almost drink. They're nearly full adults. Uh, another texture says, then add a school tracksuit, which costs another fortune, and probably one uh, or the other gets worn. Rarely. Uh, thank you for listening this morning. The Neil Prend of the show was produced by Kevin Galvin, Seamus Whelan, and Claire O'Connor. And I'll talk to you tomorrow morning after news at nine. This is another Red FM podcast. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, for more podcasts, check out redextra.ie. It's full of great Red FM content.